This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is brought to you by GovX. And as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself. And GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX gives back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, Register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products. And I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession. And 511 were founded on clothing the tactical athletes. So they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. 
Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 511 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well, their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 511 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. And to hear even more about 511, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. Welcome to episode 395 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show, Travis Wade. Now, Travis both acted in and helped produce the film The Last Full Measure, about one of the most heroic events in the Vietnam War. So we discuss a host of topics from his childhood trauma, his journey into acting, his service with the Marines, predators in Hollywood, going through Save a Warrior, and then obviously the creation of the film. Before we get to that conversation, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly elevates this project, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, whether individually, whether organizationally. So all I ask in return is that you help pay it forward and share these incredibly powerful stories of these men and women that have come on the show. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Travis Wade. Enjoy. All right, so I'm sitting here with Travis. Um, we've already chatted for over an hour. We didn't record, so we thought we'd probably hit record before we <laughs> lost any more. I have nothing else to say. Well, firstly, welcome. <laughs> I mean, sorry, welcome. Thank you for welcoming me to your home. You're welcome. Um, so for people listening, where are we on planet Earth right now? We are uh, in South Laguna, California. The epitome of privilege. <laughs> we were just talking about. <laughs> Listen, I can't deny it. It's, it's a it's a beautiful place in the world. It's a it's a bubble. We're very lucky. Beautiful. No, it is. And the drive. I just drove down from Newport where my friend um, lives, and that drive down one. Um, PCH. Beautiful. Yeah. PCH. Yeah. Gorgeous. All right. Well, as you know, I love to start at the very beginning, walk chronologically, and uh, you know, you've got quite an interesting story. So. Where were you born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. I was born in West Covina, California. Um, for years, I thought I was born in Los Angeles. Uh, I was so proud to say I was born in LA and then I looked at my birth certificate and I was like, oh, well, I guess I was born in West Covina at the City of Angels. And um, my mom and dad, uh, blue collar, uh, 
mom was an interior designer uh, for home interiors for many years, but she was from Manchester, England. She came over when she was uh, four because of asthma. She had two choices, come to England or leave England, excuse me, leave England and go to Australia or come to Southern California, which this was around the 50s and like Disneyland was being built and it was Orange Groves. It was much different Southern California than it is today. And um, her uh, her father, my, my grandfather, Arthur, he decided he wanted to move his family to uh, Rosemead, California, just outside of Los Angeles and um, Temple City. And he wanted to do it because my grandmother wanted to meet movie stars. She was fascinated. She thought she'd just run into Clark Gable. <laughs> so that's so many British people do. I'm going to go to Hollywood. I wonder who, how many stars I'm going to see. Yeah, like when no they're one. just in their backyard too. By the way, there's there's probably more stars around them in in Britain than there are actually in Hollywood. <laughs> it's like you know, uh, but he you know he didn't want to go to Australia for for reasons. You know, if you know the history between Brits and Aussies, they they they, they say that's where they ship the criminals. That's what he, that's what my grandfather used to say. No offense, to, no offense to all my Australian friends, but. That's where they send the bloody criminals. And so... Um, to, to a luxurious beachside. <laughs> beach, yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> sign me up. Where, where can I break the laws? Um, yeah, I mean, that's wonderful. Send them to Australia. Uh, and so they decided on um, Southern California. And that was, pretty, that was pretty special. My dad, my grandfather got a job at Ford, building Ford uh, automobiles. And he did that for 30 years. Um, he's a veteran, served in World War II, a British Royal Marine served uh, in Burma, in Africa, fighting the Japanese. And uh, he's a very patriotic man, very patriotic uh, Brit, loved the UK. And uh, the only reason he left was, was essentially because of my mom's health. She had to go to a warmer climate. Back then they didn't have the, what they have now for asthma. So they chose Southern California. And that's where my mom met my dad. Uh, Pops, Dennis, they call him Fun Denny. Uh, he, uh, he was, uh, you know, he's a, he's just a guy who loves to have fun. He's, he's, he's a guy who, you know, at a very young age met my mom and they got married very young and had me and my sister, uh, they bought a home in Glendora, California. And at that point, uh, Southern California was, everything was new. Everything was being built. You know, they didn't even have the, the 210 freeway completed. It, it, it didn't even connect to the, the 10. It was just, um, it was just, it was crazy. It was just such an amazing time to grow up. It was such, it was such an incredible time to grow up and, uh, be raised here. And, um, I, I remember going, you know, going to Disneyland as a kid. I remember growing up and going to the beach. I remember like basically doing both of those things in one day because, you know, you could, you could, you could, you know, hit Disneyland in the morning and then you could spend the afternoon at the rest of the afternoon at the beach because it just, there was no traffic and, a lot of what's happened recently with, with COVID um, reminds me of that time, like just kind of being on the freeway and driving around goes, last time I remember it being this way was growing up in Southern California as a kid. But uh, it was, it was, it was fun. It was a good childhood. I, I loved it. And, and my parents divorced when I was 10 and then, and then, and then became an adult really fast. But up until then, from the time I was born and then to the time I was about 10 years old, up until my parents divorced, it was uh it was it was like utopia. It was an incredible place to grow up and be a kid. Um, you see it in movies like you know Stand by Me or it's just what popped in my head when you said that. It's funny. That's what it felt like. Film. Yeah, like let's go let's go find the dead body on the tracks, you know, or let's chase these 
these stories and mysteries or let's go to the woods, you know, um, Southern California is a really an incredible place to, to live and grow up, you know, in the seventies and eighties. It was, it was amazing. I mean, it still is today. I mean, it's still great today. It's a, it's, but it's very different. It's very different. And, uh, so that's, that was my childhood. And then, like I said, at, at 10, my, um, my, my parents divorced. And I would say that that is really where the, the trauma of divorce hit me that I could remember at the time. There's, there's other trauma that happened later in my life that I remembered as a child, but I, it, at that point I didn't really recall it. Uh, but, but this was an incredible time to grow up. Um, and then all of a sudden your parents go, you know what, we're going our separate ways. And, and that was the end of an era. And then that kind of sent me down a, a different path. And so, you know, mom and dad, they, they tried to manage, uh, dad is a salesman for Reynolds metals, uh, Reynolds wrap, aluminum foils. You know, he, he, I grew up with going into the stores and watching him, you know, go to shelves and, and stock the shelves and figure out, you know, how to put certain product on a certain shelf. To, so it sold quicker, you know, or was in a certain eye line. I learned all that kind of branding and marketing stuff at a young age. And he would take me along with him. And then my mom, she was an interior decorator. So our, you know, our house was always, you know, decorated and clean and smelled nice and it was it was good it was good it was really really it was good memories I have really good memories of that time and then the divorce hit and it was just like shattering a glass like it was now you get to see your dad once a week and mom starts to date again dad's seeing the woman he left mom for uh let's all try to figure out how to make this work and yeah I became an adult really 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 quick that was a big I was 10 you know, that was the end of my childhood. You know, most people drag their childhood out up until their teens. Um, so it was going to, you know, you got to grow up at some point. But yeah, I, I had to grow up fast at 10 years old. So what what changed through your eyes that that you feel kind of ended the childhood element and dragged you towards adulthood? Um, just the understanding of relationship dynamic, what your parents' relationships really, really were, that it, it, it was somewhat a facade. They weren't very happy. Um they, they, you know, they didn't have what you kind of imagined as a kid. Your parents had, you kind of have this unit, this bond that they, they were just holding on for the kids, uh, hearing the fights, you know, and understanding that, that they had fallen out of love and that they were just trying to maintain this facade of, of holding on to something that was gone. Um, and then you, and then you realize you know, we may not live in this house anymore and where are we going to go? And then your parents start dating other people, which is really odd. You know, you start to learn about sex. Um, and now you're at a transitional age where your parents aren't together. So it kind of breaks the authority and you, you have a lack of respect for authority. That's kind of where that came in. You know, your dad, you're going to, you're going to do what I tell you to do. Why? Like, I don't see you. So why should I listen to you? Or your mom not being able to enforce it because physically, you know, there's only so many times she can, you know, smack your, smack your bum without hurting yourself. And, and so you just came home when you wanted to come home. Cause you know, you're grounded, stay in your room. What did that mean? You know, you're going to bolt the door. You just went out the window and then just kind of going out into the world. And then do you discover, you know, everything from alcohol to the wrong people and the nightlife and, um, you know, it's just kind of, you're just kind of becoming an adult real fast and, and you're doing adult things as a child. And, and so it was just that. And then, you know, no one to really regulate, you know, mom's on a date and you know, who knows what time she's going to be home. Babysitter could care less about 
you know, she'd rather be you know, talking on the phone with her boyfriend while, while you do whatever you want to do. So you start going, going yeah. <laughs> so you start exploring what's under the, what's in the drawers and what's under the covers and, and you know, what you can put in a VCR and, and, uh, you start kind of, you know, going through cabinets and seeing what you can, you, you know, you're not supposed to have, you start having. And I think that's when addiction starts to kind of creep in, right? You start putting things in your body, you know, excess amounts of sugar or just uh, booze, whatever, whatever your parents have laying around that they think that they've hidden from a child. Uh, it's just no, there's no place to hide, you know? So you find it and then, uh, and then you start going, Oh, that, that, that's, that's, that's fun. And it starts numbing your senses. And yeah, so all that kind of came in at a very young age. My parents don't like me saying it cause they, they, you know, they don't realize the damage that kind of happens. Um, they feel responsible, but you know, people falling and out of love and they're really good parents. They're really loving parents. I had really good family. They just couldn't hold it together as a couple. Yeah. Pops loves women. He still does to this day. You know, he'll probably listen to this and laugh, but you know, <laughs> he, he's just a guy who loves women. And my mom's uh, a woman who just wanted a man to be exactly who my stepfather is. And, and my stepdad, Keith is just an incredible soul. Like she remarried him and, um, and he just was, a, he was just, he was what we needed. He was the authoritative person and he came in, he was very strong. He's British. He's from Newcastle. And, uh, you know, he was just really the disciplinary in our house and, and him and I butted heads for about a year. And then I, I moved out and started living with my dad. And then my dad was living with his girlfriend. And so I had this house to myself at a very young age. How old were you then? We go back and forth on it. You know, my, I, you know, I'll make the age much younger, but I, <laughs> I you know, to be fair to I them, was I, six. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was four and I had the run of the mill. No, I was, I, I, you know, I, I want to say that from the time I, you know, I'll be fair to them from the time I would say, I would say 13 on, I had, I had full access to a, to a home of my own with dad checking in every now and then, you know, he would say everything good you're good okay and he would go to his his girlfriend's house and then my mom lived with her husband now and they were up in Rancho Cucamonga Altaloma they moved they left Glendora my childhood home is still like something I want to eventually purchase and 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 get to have in the family again I I, I love that house so that you know leaving that house was devastating but um they moved to Rancho and, and uh, Altaloma at that point felt like Covina in the 70s. It was building and growing and they were building the freeway. And But they were going the opposite direction. Like I had always kind of wanted to go the other way. I'd always kind of wanted something more. Uh, I didn't want to go out to the desert. I didn't, I didn't want to go to Vegas. I didn't want to head east. I wanted to go west. And so uh, I, always, I always had my eye on LA. No idea what I wanted to do in LA. I mean, no aspirations to be in the arts at all. Um, I always thought I was going to be an athlete um, or something, a police officer, firefighter, something that had to do with group unit. And, um, and so I just started living this kind of really fun junior high, high school fantasy of of having the run of the mill having my own house so to speak bachelor pad at bachelor pad at 13 <laughs> with a pool with a pool table with you know an upstairs and a downstairs and roofs that kids jumped off of into the pool and parties and uh that was kind of when i really started to have the run-in with the police because of the neighbors and the noise like we would have parties every night monday through monday and you know now looking back i would have hated me 
if if I live next to me now, I would have hated me. I, you don't know that then. You're like, let us just be kids, have fun. But we, you know, we were blasting rap music and NWA and and uh, we were anti-authority and cops were knocking on my door every night. Shut it down. Is there drinking? I see a beer over the can over there. You know, are you, who, who's legal here? <laughs> like, who, who can buy this stuff? Who's buying it for you? You know, it was great. You know, we had a liquor store down the street. We had neighbors that were, you know, able to purchase it. We had fake IDs. I mean, we had the whole, we had a racket. We, if you ever seen the movie Boiler Room, we we had that going on. We had we had gambling and and all sorts of stuff downstairs. I had I had hired the guys down the street who were pretty, pretty tough dudes. Um, at that point, Crips and Bloods were like a big thing in LA, and so like you had different pockets of Crips and Bloods in different communities. And we had a couple of guys down the street that were part of the gangs, and uh, I'd hire them. I'd pay them a hundred hundred bucks to to stand at the door and you know take monitor and take five bucks for anybody who wants to come in. So like we were we were running a business. It was crazy. It was nuts. And at the same time, I was playing football and doing quite well. And you know, God bless uh, my coach Lou Ferrar because uh, I was telling my fiance the other day. I just go, she goes, so how were you in school? Did you did you study? And I go, I didn't even open a book. She goes, how did you pass? I said, I just had to be good on Friday nights, you know. And that was that period of time. It's changed quite a bit. You know, athletes now are required to open books you know to, to the extent but back when i grew up you know you played sports and you were good you could get by with a 2.5 you know you could you could scan tron the test and you just go c c c c c it's gotta be some of them gotta be right <laughs> yeah you four, one out of four right <laughs> and you know it, it was amazing you know it was amazing how you you know you just you just focused on sports and partying and you know every now and then you would pick up something in class some teacher would teach you something that you would go oh that's a good teacher i'll listen but we were we, we were in public school and education was not our number one priority so you know if you talk to anybody i went to high school with or junior high with they will tell you it, it fast times at Ridgemont high doesn't even capture what our life was. It, it, it was a movie in itself. Like it was a 24 seven party. I mean, we had people knocking on our door, guys asking if we could, you know, come over and they could be with their girlfriend alone, you know? And it was, yeah, sure. Like, you know, yeah, I get it. You don't want to be intimate with your girlfriend, you know, if her parents come home or his parents come home or whatever. So come on in, go downstairs and it was just madness. It, it, looking back at it now, it just really set the kind of tone to go into Hollywood. Like, you kind of, that's what it was preparing me Groomed, for. Groomed, yeah. Yeah, gr I was grooming myself for Hollywood. And, you know, just on a, on a much higher scale when you get to Hollywood, the, you know, way more money, way more excess, way more fame. And, uh, but yeah, it was kind of preparing me for, for the next two decades of my life, you know, the next, um, excuse me, the next decade of my life. And, and, uh, and then spending the next, you know, 10 years trying to figure out what the last 10 years was, you know, it, it is just one big party. Now you said about the football, you were the high school captain, is that right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I never played, I always played soccer growing up, soccer and baseball. And then around my, um, around seventh grade, like sixth, seventh grade, it was no longer cool then to be a soccer player. And this is in the, this was in the nineties. Um, much cooler now. All these other sports are much cooler. Water polo, track's cool. <laughs> like you know, yeah, the cross. Oh, but back when I grew up, man, it was like football in America. 
where I grew up, uh, Friday nights was the thing, the, the Letterman jacket, it was the thing. And, and whether we drank our own Kool-Aid, we probably were, but it, it, you were, you, you kind of ran the school. And, um, I started playing football my seventh grade year because I got picked on. I got, I got bullied for playing soccer. Like, oh, you just, you know, you're too scared to, you know, play contact sport. And I'm like, soccer's pretty, pretty tough. But oh, you still it's felt easy like, though. You only have to run back and forth for ninety minutes straight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's no pads. Yeah, right. For, you know, when they hit you, it hurts. Versus, but, you know, oh, you're gonna do one play. Oh, I'm tired. I'm tired. As yeah. a defense, now I'm gonna go sit down and have some Gatorade. Yeah. <laughs> and then we, you know, we're not even getting into rugby, right? Well, I mean, exactly. Rugby is, you know, a whole other level of toughness. But in, you know, in California and America in the in the '90s, football was huge, and um, we decided that uh, we were just gonna run the school. And so around my seventh grade year, my first football team, uh, we went to the state finals. We, we were great. We ended up going to, um, I, play, I played uh, midget football for the Rancho Cucamonga Cougars. Can't even believe I remember that. And my first year playing, starting, we, we won state. We, we like won the whole thing. Like, so I was addicted because we were good. And then I got to high school and we were not good. My freshman year, I think we were like three and seven, and my junior, my my uh, sophomore year, we were. I think we won like one or two games. I forget our record. My sophomore year, but my junior, year, we were incredible. Like, In what position were you playing? So I started as a quarterback, and then I just didn't grow. I stayed at like five seven. At that point, I peaked my height, but I mean, I was I had a huge growth spurt, and then I thought I'm going to play the NFL. I'm going to play professional sports. This is it. And I, I felt like I had the, the mindset and the, and the skill ability to do that in my mind. And, and then everyone else started getting bigger and growing and I stopped. And that's when sports really started to like the, the, the skill level just went next, next level. Like these guys like Lawrence Phillips and Chris Straff, these guys who ended up playing in the NFL were the guys I played against. And then you got hit by those guys and you were like, wait a minute something's changed like the, the entire sport has changed you, like, ha- you have to be a certain size the same way as you can't be a six foot two gymnast and speed yeah speed's the other thing too like you know these linemen that were you know close to 250 pounds were running like four nines four elevens like that's unheard of like the speed that they would hit you at and and the pain um very quickly, I was like, all right, I'm just going to have a really great high school career. <laughs> like, like, I'm going to do my best in high school. But I knew that after high school, I knew that was it. I'm going into curling. And so I just gave it my all. I literally, I, I left it all on the field. And my junior year, we had the best team in Southern California by far. We were, we were projected to win everything. Uh, we got upset. Uh, we were, you know, 12 and 0. And then we got, we got defeated by two, inc- by an incredible team in Valencia that multiple players on that team went to the pros, but we were, we, we got shocked that our defense, and I still think this record stands our defense, regular season, the entire 10 games gave up 13 points, the entire season combined. Not, we had 63, nothing, 54, nothing, you know, I mean, we were beasts. I mean, we were one of the better teams. Uh, It's like, it's in the history books. Bonita in 1939 had um, no points in 1939. No one scored on their defense. We were second, the second best defense. That's because all, all the other teams got drafted for World War II. So. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's no one playing. <laughs> but I, I was very, you know, it's funny. Normally I don't get into these conversations and really break down my childhood or my, my high school years. But I probably could have tapped out after my senior year and said, that's it. The book's done. I've lived. 
and a lot of guys do, they, they live in the past and they go, you know what, those are the best years of my life. And then they get married and have kids and they just kind of forget their own dreams because they lived it. They, yeah. That was it. Uncle they, Rico's. Uncle Rico's, 100%. And I, I was determined to not let that. I was like, this can't be it. But it was really hard to beat it. It was really hard to beat my, even to this day, I talked to people I went to high school with and they're just like, you remember, remember those days? I'm like, yeah, I'm still trying to live them. <laughs> still, like, I, I, I still want the, the you know, I'm, I, I wasn't done. You know, I, I still had a lot of, a lot of, a lot of left in me apparently. Um, but yeah, I mean, you could have said that's it. And I could have said, I'm, I'm done. I, I, I could have got married. I could have had kids and, and just look back on that time in my life and said, that was a magical, that was one of the most incredible experiences. My senior year, we lost a lot of players. So I ended up, uh, being captain, um, my freshman year, my sophomore year and my senior year, uh, my junior year, there's just the, the guys that were captains were, I mean, they were, there's beasts and I played behind a guy that was a beast. So I was second string my junior year and there's no way I was going to be first string based upon who I was behind. He was incredible. And at that point I became a linebacker and a fullback. And that was a position he played. And he was one of those guys that was like, I'm never coming out. Like we'd be up 54, nothing. And he would still, he'd stay in. And I'd be like, you know, asshole, like, <laughs> I got to play next bench. year. Like, <laughs> let me in, let me play. And got hemorrhoids you know, for Christ's sake. he was a hell of a player, Greg Bonomo. He was one hell of an athlete. He was really talented. He was really gifted and he never came out. And I, and I understand now why he didn't because you know, you have this time and that's it. And, and I did the same thing my senior year. I never came out. I was like, that's, this is it. So we had a really good senior year. We did bet. We were projected my senior year to go zero and 10 because we lost everybody. And then we went um, eight and three, which was great. And we came one fumble away from winning uh, uh, our league just at the last minute was fumble and we lost. So we, we did really well. And that kind of set the tone for um, that kind of set the tone for the next the next stage of my life, which was the Marine Corps. Because after football, I was like, what do you want to do? And I remember my last game, I cried like a baby. And some of my closest friends were like, what are you doing? Don't cry. What are you, like you're, you're a captain, like you're big pussy, like you're showing everybody else. And I was like, I never play this game again. I was so heartbroken. The bus ride home, our last game, and I also I was broken too. We got we got the shit kicked out of us. Like we got beat bad. I mean, it was like twenty eight to ten, but the score did not reflect how how bad we got hurt. Like we got pounded by this uh, Whittier team. Um, Greg Ford, who ended up going to play in the pros, he was their fullback and he just destroyed me. Like, like flattened me every play. Like, wham. And I was a senior just getting in a captain. I was just getting destroyed. I felt like I was on like, you know, the beaches of Normandy, <laughs> like just getting, <laughs> you know, just getting mowed down and like trying to get up. And, you know, uh, I just was like, this is awful. Like, this is horrible. I am, I will never play football again. And, and it was around that time that I, I just, I thought that the Marine Corps would be a good, uh transition to from that unit to the next unit i thought the marine corps would be a lot like football it was not and so that that was my childhood and you know like i said i, I kind of grew up my, my parents they they started to do their own uh their own thing they, they were always there for us always made sure you know that we were provided for but it was like i got this like you guys i got a job at a young age i was working like at 15 uh you know i was paying the bills I needed to pay. I had a car. I, you know, I, I earned everything I had, you know, every now and then the parents would, would chip in, but as long as they were paying the rent and the, and the utilities, I took care of all the rest. 
And, and so I kind of learned at a young age how to, how to survive and whatever you need to do to, to pay the bills and get by. Um, but they were always loving, never, they kind of, I, I don't want to say gave up, but they just, the, the greatest gift they ever gave me was no matter what I told them I was going to do, they always immediately said, well, just do your best at it. And, and if you do, you'll succeed at it. They never went, oh no, like, do you know how difficult that is? Like, oh, the Marine Corps, you might die. Uh, oh, football, you might break your neck. Uh, Hollywood, do you know, do you know the chances of, of, no one makes it in Hollywood. Do you know how many people go out there to make it? They never did that. Which I is, uh, you know, for anybody who's a parent and anybody who's listening to this, whether you feel it or not, whether what you want to say, just just tell them that they can do it. Well, the question is, is why not? Why wouldn't you be the person? I always tell people, even with the fire service, oh, you know, it's so hard to get in this department. I tell them, well, how many spots do you need? Yeah. Just one. Yeah. So it doesn't worry about the ratio, the percentage or anything. All you want is one spot. So go fight for it. That's it. And that, that was my... Uh, my mindset was, look, I, I'm not setting out to be a huge celebrity. That wasn't my mindset. My mindset was, I just want to work in this industry. And I didn't know what as. This was before I wanted to even be an actor. I just want to work on movies. And there's a whole story as to why that is. But but I just I just felt that was, why not? Like, why can't you work on films? Why can't you be a writer? Why can't you write a script? Why can't you be a grip? Why can't you work in casting? Like, just start someone did did. and nobody in the entertainment business other than uh let's say the daniel day lewis's or the gary oldman's right nobody i've ever looked at have i gone i can't do that now gary oldman and daniel day lewis there's been the things they've done that i'm like i don't know i don't know what they did i don't know how he did lincoln i i I don't know how he did that and i don't have the discipline or i don't want to have the discipline to do what he did to, to pull that off. Like their level of craft is to me is mind boggling. I think that Tom Hardy's the kind of younger version of them mm-hmm. too. Like some of his character stuff is incredible. Like I don't know what he's doing, mm. you know, and I, I don't know how he's doing all that, but yet hitting his mark. There's all these things I learned about the craft that, that very, very few actors did I look at going like, I can't do that. But you know, I sure went to a few college games and stood on the sidelines and watched, um, watched players playing went, okay, I can't do that. I physically cannot play on that field. I would get killed. I never, never thought that about the arts. I never looked at the arts and, and said anything. Like I never looked at it and went, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't play that part. Now getting in there and learning, you know, some of the things that people have done have been rather impressive to me. Like certain performances, I, I go, wow. But 90% of the film, I know exactly what they're doing and I know how they did it and how they got there and I know the tools that they used to get there and and none of it is... um none of it's impossible, you know, it's, it's all just practice and just learning. And, um, everyone has their own unique way of doing it, but none of it was ever intimidating to me. Uh, Just even getting on stage was like not intimidating to me. Um, and for some people it is like just, just getting in front of people and speaking or, or being able to kind of isolate. I still struggle with it. Why do you think I'm standing behind a microphone most (laughs) of the time? (laughs) I teach it. That's what I, that's what I do in Vietnam. I, 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 take people who have a very difficult time with performing and getting in front and standing in front of a crowd. And I teach them how to do that. That's one of the things I, I do in Vietnam and and I do here also in the States. Um, it's something I love doing because it's just getting out of the way of yourself. And once you teach someone how to do that, it's, it's kind of cool to watch someone who can't even get up and speak on stage, like perform like a speech or a soliloquy or a monologue and come off and go, wow, like, 
you know, last year I couldn't even talk in front of people and like to give them the tools and there's just tools that you give people. And once they have the tools and then, then they can build, they can build whatever they want. So I enjoy that. And that's something I really love doing, but nothing about the, the entertainment industry was ever, um, not possible. But if I would have had parents that said, Oh, that's an impossible profession. Everybody wants to do that. You'll never succeed at it. You know, oh gosh, it's so, f luckily I live very close to LA, but oh, it's so far away and you don't know anybody and you don't have it. You know, most everybody makes it out there, have family in there and, and you know, everyone gets a leg up from somebody. It's, it's, it's who you know. It's which, who you know. Which is funny because the plumbing industry and the accounting you know. industry is still, <laughs> oh, you know, there's you know. no mystery because they say it in the fire service too. Oh, that's, you know. Yeah. It's, and just, uh, nepotism. It, it, it's funny you say that because um, that was my big kind of getting over a hump was it, it is who you know, but also can it also be who you meet? Because then once you meet them, then you know them. So my mindset was like, all right, I don't know anybody, but I'm going to meet everyone. And so like I, I got into bartending and like that was my end. Like I got to meet everyone and they also wanted something from me. And then I learned to not tailor myself to the artists, to the actors, to the celebrities. When I worked at a bar, like if Vince Vaughn walked in, I wouldn't be like, Hey Vince, what do you want? I would ask the guy next to him what he wanted. I'd be like, what can I get you? And Vince would be like, dude, Mike, what's up? Why is this guy not like serving me? I'm the famous dude. I'm not that Vince said that, but I'm sure in his mind he was like, everybody probably offers Vince the service because it's Vince and they recognize him. But I'm like, who's the guy standing next to Vince is probably the guy who actually made Vince his career, probably his manager, his agent, his friend who knows him really well, whatever. The guy probably deserves a, a drink before Vince because everybody throws everything at Vince. And I'm using Vince as an example because Vince was one of our regulars at, at the bar I worked at. And I just learned there at a very, at very early age, like they want something from me. So, I'm kind of, I have the power. I'm the, I'm the barkeep and every actor who's a bartender or waiter wants something from them. But then you realize they can't give you anything. They really can't. So all the, thing, the only thing you can do them is give them a drink and good service and, and be a good person to them. And, and then they, then you just get good word of mouth. Like that guy's a nice guy. And that goes a lot longer than hoping that one of those guys gets you a, a, a gig. There's a Eddie Izzard skit and he talks about going to Pinewood Studios in London. Yeah. He's like, I used to sneak on set. I, was like, I don't know what I was thinking. Like someone's gonna like, "Hey, you creeping kid, we need you for a role called Creeping Kid." <laughs> I mean, it's like, what do we expect? That's what. That's the You're mindset. Exactly though. Right. You've got two eyes. Yeah. We haven't had anyone walking here with two, two eyes, eyes before. Yeah, <laughs> you'd be great for the lead in this new Star Wars film. Like, yeah, you could be Luke Skywalker. Well, they hear the Harrison Ford. I was there just banging nails and like, "Hey, we need you to be a star in Star." Wars. Oh, okay. Well, I guess. Do you want me to finish this first? Or? Yeah. Not that Harrison hadn't worked his ass off. Exactly. And been a studio guy and and like basically had resorted to 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 doing woodwork because the, the acting gig wasn't going well yeah i mean that's the real story with harrison but the story you hear is that he was just randomly hitting nails in a wall and lucas was like you're my guy like no harrison had a lot of work he did <laughs> um but yeah that 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 led me to my um you know i i completely skipped over the marine corps because it, it was it was such a it was such an interesting time to go from having all this freedom and no respect for authority and basically being a perfect storm of what shouldn't go into the Marine Corps and going, hey, this is a great idea. I've had no rules essentially since I was 13 and I've lived this life of excess and freedom. Let's go give it all away and let's just give away my citizenship and what most people don't understand about Marines and military 
is that we stand on two footprints and we read the USMCJ, the, 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 the code, and we essentially give up our citizenship. We are no longer a citizen of the United States. We are now property of the US government. When I read that, I, I realized when I read that out loud, my first day at boot camp, I went, oh shit. What do, you, what do you mean? I'm, not, I'm no longer a citizen of the United States. I'm no longer. I just gave up my citizenship. You're a number right now. I'm a number. And, and how long did I give up that for? Okay, I'm, I'm 18. Eight years? Eight years at 18 is a long time. The older you get, it doesn't feel that long. But when you're, when you're 18 and you're like 26, 20, they have me until I'm 26 years old. They, they, I, am, I, am no, I am no longer a citizen until I'm 28. They can pull me in at any time any place they can stop loss me at any point man i didn't really look at that when i signed that i just signed i was just all like super patriotic i thought it was gonna be richard gear i was i was like <laughs> yeah i was all excited i was like, i'm gonna be a marine i'm gonna be like that guy who fights the dragons in the in the commercials and i was so patriotic like i was just so i just love this country i went to mexico with some friends my senior year and i just saw you know really what what we're seeing nowadays in america which is the homeless and the streets and the and the people begging for food and tijuana mexico uh looks a lot like downtown la right now mm. you know i bet it looks a lot safer than it does these days too mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you walk across the border into san diego and go to the jack in the box and people are getting up and running and exercising and you know the, the water's clean and you're just kind of going like wait like this is just a line someone drew and on this side of the line there's a lot of suffering on this side of the line. There's a lot of, you know, thriving. And so, um, that was hard. That was really like mentally, like I need to serve my country. Cause I was set to go to college. I was going to go to Cal state Fullerton. And I was like, I was just going to do like, you know, criminal law and figure it out. I thought maybe I'd go into being a police officer. And then I was like, you know what? I need to go. I need to go in the U S Marine Corps. And why the Marines? Cause my grandfather's a British Royal Marine. He always told me, son, if you, you know, you serve your country, be a Marine, I, I don't know why, you know, other than what I know now, but I didn't know why then. And I just went in and walked in. And after recovering from my hangover from Tijuana, I walked into a recruiter's office and met with Sergeant Reyes. And, uh, and he goes, you sure you want to be a Marine? I go, yeah, absolutely. Yes, sir. Sign me up. And, uh, he goes, okay, that's easy. What do you want to do? I said, what's the hardest? He goes, oh, 311 grunt. So what's that? He goes, infantryman. Yes. Okay. What can I do? Like special forces? He goes, well, you got to get through this first and you can do all that. Cause I was like, oh yeah, I just want to, I just want to be tested and man, it, 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 you know, it did not take long for me to realize that, that high school football was nothing, nothing compared to the first three days of boot camp. Like the first three days in boot camp was the hardest first three days of my life of my entire football career was those first three days was more difficult than those than, than that. And, and it, you realize real quickly, like these, these guys are, they got me. So I'm either in or I'm out. And then I, you know, I went in thinking like, I'm not going to come out a jarhead. I'm not going to come out brainwashed. All this shit you hear about Marines. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to keep true to myself. I'll be a Marine. Yes, but I'm, I'm not getting brainwashed. And like by the end of boot camp, I was like, Oh shit. <laughs> My friends came to visit me from high school, you know, and we were only like four months out of high school because I went in in August and graduated in November. So, you know, we graduated high school in June. So four or five months, you know, 
I, I hadn't seen these guys. And then the next time they see me, I'm a U.S. Marine. And all of them were in some way, some form going to go into the military at some point. But they hadn't gone in yet. And so they come walking up on Visitor Sunday. And that, that's like day 89. You graduate like day 92. And like day 89, they come walking up. And I just went, look at them. Fucking haircut. Jeans sagging. Hippie commies. Hippie. Haven't <laughs> shaved. Communist bastards. Like they don't even serve their country, and they're not. Even, you know, what are they doing with their lives? College. And I just remember having these thoughts in my head of like completely judgmental thoughts, and going like, "Oh no, <laughs> I'm a jarhead." You know, going my my girlfriend at the time. She was in high school. She was like, "Come with me to prom," and I went to her prom, and I never felt more old in my life. There I was, one year graduated, one year. And I felt like the old dude going back to high school. Like, I'm like, I shouldn't have a high school girlfriend. Like, I should be with a woman. And I'm like 19. You know, but yet I was so embarrassed. But you've had your own place since you were 13. 13. So technically like but I, she was seven, But she was 17, <laughs> right? I mean, you're a 17-year-old in high school. You want me to go to your prom? Like, I'm two years removed, right? And, and I wore, like, my dress blues. And I could not have felt more uncomfortable. Like, I was in my dress blues at her, se- at her senior prom. And I was just like, these kids. <laughs> I'm like one year older than them, right? But I just had this like, like, yeah. It was like my first real experience, because I never looked at. I was a dork. I was a dork in junior high. I was really dorky. I had no friends. I got picked on. I got thrown at. But then I grew, and then I got into football, and then I beat somebody's ass, and then it was game on. And then I had my own house, and then it was game on. So, but it, it, it I had to build that. But I was, a, I was rock bottom, you know, four eleven nerd with no money wearing pro wings and you know parents divorced all this like trauma and like the weird kid who sat by himself in the corner and i remember going like one day i want to be popular and then realizing when you get popular you're like i don't want to be popular like it it sucks to have like people looking at you you know like what do you do and you're like i don't know like do it yourself but i remember like being a geek and so all through my high school years even though i kind of went up the ladder like everybody was invited to my house like this wasn't like oh just jocks only it was anybody like we had the valedictorian we you know we we had we had all it was covina in the 80s and the 90s was skittles it was asian black mexican white like like it was all mixed afghan like muslim like it was all there was no prominent I color. There are only two types of people in America from what I've seen the last few months. There's black people and white, white people. people. They yeah. all hate each all other. the brown people are like, hey, <laughs> hey. All the Asians are like, what the hell? But Bokovina, if you look at like our senior class picture, like it was it was Skittles. Like we were all and everybody was invited to the house. Like that was my thing. I wasn't going to become this popular guy because we saw it in all the movies, right? Like the popular guy was the the the, the captain of the football team was always a dick. Slamming the geek into geek the, in the wall. Like, I remember watching as a British kid. Like we did, we don't have those clicks. Clicks. So like what? Yeah. Who does that? Yeah. Who picks a child up and puts Americans. them into a lock? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I asked my wife, like, do people actually do that? She's like, yeah, they do. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? And I remember Where did seeing, that come from? I remember seeing Lucas with Charlie Sheen and Corey Haim in a movie. Like he was this big dork, and Charlie Sheen was just good to him. He was just a good guy, and all the other all the other jocks were like, "Why are you hanging out with that kid?" And he was like. It's a good guy, you know, like I just remember that movie being like, you know, don't don't forget to look back like. And so my senior year was skittled with that. Like it was just everyone was invited. Nobody picked on nerds like that was that was not allowed. If you picked if we'd pick on you and I've had so many conversations with so many guys I went to high school with that would that have called me and, and really cool said, thank you. I, you know, you you helped me from getting picked on or bullied. And, and I was like, for sure, like that, you know, I, I got bullied, too. So I know what it felt like. Um, 
but then I became a Marine and, and then it was my, it was really my first time ever experiencing feeling better than other people. That was a real feeling. Um, like really looking down at people, looking down at the Navy, the army, like hey, what, what branch of service did you, did you go into? I went to the Navy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, genuinely like, and me and me like, that's not who I am. I don't think that way. But, but in the Marines, like there's a certain level of, of like, if, look, if you're going to go in and they're going to say, look, nine guys are going to go up that hill and eight guys are going to come back. You kind of have to have that mentality. It's, 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 it's not something I, I think is a good quality, but it's certainly like, it seems necessary for the job now looking back, right? You, the same in the fire service. Same, right? You can't, you don't want to go into a situation, whether it's a mass shooting or whether it's, you know, a fire with a doubt that you or one of the people that you're standing next to mm-hmm. doesn't know what they're doing. Like when yeah. it's go time to be in that flow state, you have to have a hundred percent all in. And know, be a faith. captain, right? And, and to send men into something that they might not come out of. You, you have to have a level of ego, egotistical confidence egotistical confidence that that doesn't wear well um when you're off work right when you're on work that makes sense but it's hard to kind of take that that jacket off when you get home you you kind of take it with you you know you you walk into bars or you go on a date and you talk to other people and it's hard to kind of take off that that arrogance and that ego and put it down and be like, Hey, I'm a human being like the rest of you, you know, but if I have to go into combat, I'm going to put that on and I'm, I'm going to be better than everybody else. Same thing goes with Hollywood, right? I mean, in order to be a big movie star, you've got to think you're better than the, the, the 300 people walking into a room for the same job. You've got to go. There's something special about me. That's better than all y'all. Even though we all look almost identical. We're all identical. We all pretty much have the same skill set. We all know the same thing. There's no, there's no secrets here. We all, you know, we've, we've all took an Uta Hagen and, We've all studied with, you know, Stella Adler and we all know that we all know that the tools, uh, we all look the same. So w- what makes you different? And that's a whole nother podcast as to, you know, how you move up that ladder. But, but it, it just, the Marines in Hollywood, it just didn't start to, it didn't fit. It didn't feel like a good fit. You know, it didn't feel like who I was at, at my core. Like I, I have a hard time thinking that way. And, and also taking that off and then being around people who do think that way and not calling them out on it, you know, not, not saying, Hey, like, look, if you're going to be a certain way, just own it, just own it. Like, don't, don't pretend you're this and, and don't, don't paint this picture. And, you know, there, there's politics in you know, Hollywood that you, you kind of have to play this, this game with your fans with the people, with, with casting directors and, and I understand it, but it, it always felt like I was putting on, um, I was putting something on my arm. I didn't really want to wear, you know, I think about that a lot. Like, especially as I get older, I think, what is it that gets people to be a certain way? Like what, what gets them to think a certain way? What gets people to think that they are so superior that they're willing to wipe out an entire race? Like it obviously happens. It happened. I see. Re- I see it. I see it happening again on both sides. And and I I just go. You know what? What gets people to a place that they think like we need to eliminate this because our way of thinking is so much more dominant. And I catch myself all the time. 
all the time. Most of the times when I post or I, you know, they do the social media thing, I'm like, damn it, why did you post that? You should all go back and you should ask a question rather than a statement. That's what I'm trying to do more: ask questions rather than statements. Because I start making statements, then I, it's bad. It's really bad, and I go down that rabbit hole a lot. But all that, all that happened in the Marine Corps, and where you actually have to feel a certain way about yourself and you have to be a certain way if the competition is so high and the risks are so high and just learning that um and then going from that to hollywood like really like perfect storms of major disaster and trauma and and then all that kind of getting unpacked and unfolded and and then really getting back to like like the zoolander thing like who am i you know, when he looks in the water because he doesn't know who he is anymore. Like that is a scary place to, 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 to really go to, but it's such a, a freeing place once you get there and then you, you can kind of move from that place forward. You no longer are reliant upon, um, you know, the things that you were shackled to, like we, we talked to before the podcast, like I'm no longer shackled to Hollywood. I'm no longer shackled to the military. I, I really don't have, you know, my income attached to anything that I have to not say how I feel, which is good and bad because sometimes when you don't have it, you don't monitor yourself very well. You know, when you have it, you kind of have to think about, if I say this, this is this could be there, but also it was very freeing to go. I can say whatever the fuck I want right now. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's good about having a, a true, you know, partner that actually yeah. is the one. Yeah. Cause I run things by my wife. All the time. I'm about to say this. <laughs> you want to proofread it before I stick my foot in my mouth? <laughs> so yeah, so um, I you know it is like Alexis came into my life uh, when I was at my lowest. I I had been defeated. I definitely got defeated, and I don't like talking about it a lot because then the people who defeated me thinks they believe they won, but then I look at where I'm at today, and I'm like, actually, they didn't win. But boy, did the the mob! I got hit with the mob pretty hard. Um, and then I've been hit with them ever since when I decided like, you know what, I'm not just going to stand on the side because I'm, I, I have to anymore. I'm going to kind of find my own path. And if that means I have to align with something for a little bit in order to find it, then, then so be it. But I, I have to, you know, I had to pick two sides of a coin and, and one side I didn't want to be a part of anymore because of everything that I saw, everything I experienced, people I know in power, um, you know, the elites and, and being kind of behind the curtain. Um, behaviors, things that they were acceptable to them um, that, you know, if you start speaking about, you get called a conspiracy theorist, right? But I can't, I can't be a conspiracy, the things I've seen. And, and I tell this to people all the time. I, you know, Harvey Weinstein, people knew about him for, for decade. Women knew who he was, very powerful women, very powerful, successful women and very young actresses that wanted to be successful would, would be given to Harvey by these very successful, powerful women. Here, go talk to Harvey. Go up to his room. I nobody wants me to come to his room. But just go. You, you gotta go. Well, and that's. I mean, they the casting it. couch is a, is a known thing. I mean, that not a that show that they did. I think it was called Hollywood. Yeah. Recently, I mean, I believe that when we we're told that was based on a true story. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, to to to, to question that. By it? Yeah, like, I mean, is it everyone? Of course not. The same way as I don't think, you know, everyone's ripping kids' face off and faces off and sucking out their adrenal glands. But, you know, has it happened? I don't know. But yeah. you don't focus on that. Is there that element? Is there sex trafficking going on in the world? Yeah. That's what we should be focusing on. I couldn't agree with you more. There is a wonderful 
company out there that I've that I've uh, worked with and want to work more with that uh, is is fighting that as we speak. Which is the company? Exodus Road. Okay, so I had a couple of guys. Well, uh, um, the head of uh, Deliver Fund. Have you heard of them? Mm-hmm. Of yeah. Course, yeah. And then um, Tamir Naj, who's actually a sex trafficked um, Hungarian woman, who's now working with them too. Yeah. So it's um, it's scary. It's scary when you think about the numbers. It's it's bigger than the cartels. It's bigger than the drug business. You know, the the transportation of humans is, is far more valuable than the transportation of drugs. And children is kind of where I, I, you know, because of my childhood and things that I had gone through that I kind of draw the line with children. Um, you know, you're an adult. You're an adult. You make adult decisions. You you have to you know. We talked a little bit about victimhood. Like you you've got to take responsibility for the things that you've chosen in your life. You know places that you've put yourself, people you've decided to spend time with, um, decisions you make. Like you know, I've decided uh, you know after twenty years of never owning a weapon that I'm really about to go purchase one for the first time. But that decision's huge. Like that's not something I think very easily about. Like I'm not running around going like I'm just gonna buy a gun. Like I, why do you have one? What do you need one for? What's gonna happen if you have to use it? You know, what are the benefits of being able to protect yourself and your family? Like I said, I got out of the Marine Corps um, in '97. I've never owned a weapon, and there's a reason why, right? And so I think very you know if anything happens one day because I bought one. I was the one who made the decision to get one. Now, whether that's good or bad, I still have to go back to that decision that I made to get one. Um, and we just aren't taking responsibility for the positions we put ourselves in. And do, you, do you think that part of the, the difficulty, because I had this as a Brit, came from your British you know, influence of your parents uh, and their philosophy on guns? Because I, I, that's actually in the book that I gave you. There's a chapter on yeah. uh, near school shooting in my son's school while I was there. It was a false alarm, but... I that was the moment where I'm like, I think I get it. It's not about me protecting me. It's having a tool that I might be able to protect the people I love. And if person A has got a gun and I've got a stick, You're in trouble. it's not going to end up well. But am I going to run around like John Wayne? Absolutely not. But if it's I've got a tourniquet in my car, I've got a BVM, you know, a, a mask uh, for CPR, and I've got a weapon. And each of those things can save a life. But I don't have it as a badge of honor or because you know hashtag america i have it because of my own very personal you know views and and the journey i've taken and the training that i've got with that weapon too Mm -hmm. and i I, you know for me we're constantly evolving and changing i i don't know the science of it but they say x amount of years you change right and your your beliefs change your opinions change um you know i my opinions have changed quite a bit over the last five years um, I, I just never was a big believer in weapons. I fired enough in the Marine Corps. I saw the damage they did. I've, I've seen what they can do. Um, I tell people this all the time, you know, police are there to protect and serve. That's, that's their logo. That's their motto. Whether or not some actually don't, you know, adhere to that is a different story. But I, by and large, I believe most of them believe they are there to protect and serve. Uh, Marines were not there to protect and serve like that's not our motto Mm. (laughs) (laughs) unicorns and kittens (laughs) yeah like we we, you know i know i know what a weapon is and what it does and i know how to use it and i and and i you know i i right out of military i said i never want to touch another one of those again um 
I have friends who are the complete opposite. They got out of the Marine Corps and they stay, they have an arsenal. I mean, they have an arsenal, like literally like a garage, like basically if the apocalypse goes, I know where I'm going and it's not here. Like I, I know where to go to defend myself, but, um, I've always been really, you know, concerned about the amount that, that people can arm themselves because at the end of the day, the statistics show that most likely you, someone you love is, is going to get hurt. Um, the stories you hear about kids, you know, finding a weapon and hurting themselves or all of it just kind of added up for me to not have one. And it wasn't until the last few years that my opinion changed on that. Like my opinions, you know, with what I've seen and, um, you know, kind of the long leash that these organizations have been given to, to kind of blow off some steam, to riot, to loot, to burn. Uh, you know, if I lived in, if I lived in downtown LA, I'd have one right now. I just would because it's gotten to that place, you know, and I just, I, I struggle with it here in Laguna because there's only one way to go either that way or that way. You can't go in the ocean and you can't go, the hills are high. So I I don't think it's going to land here. But boy, if, if, you know, I turned around one day and that store was burning and that house was burning and people were outside my door with weapons and chanting, burn it down, I'd probably go and get a weapon. And I, I, I wouldn't want that right to not be available to me. And so my second amendment, you know, is, is, it's kind of shifted a little bit, but where does that stop? Right. You know, if you have the right to this weapon, then don't you have the right to that weapon? And what about this weapon? I should be able to have a grenade launcher. Yeah. Well, but again, it's that, that common sense thing too, because I had that when I first came from from um, the UK, went to Gander Mountain. I don't know if you have them in California, but they're a big yeah, yeah. camping store. And there were 50 cal sniper rifles. And I'm like, I get the home defense element. I get the personal carry. But a 50 cal, <laughs> if you're aiming a 50 cal a burglar, then I, you're probably going to murder. you got to identify the person after, right? I mean, you know, you got to leave something. And then all the other neighbors that you murdered as well, <laughs> well as the bullet kept as it going. going through the houses, you know? Yeah, it's like, where, where do we end? Um, it's a very, it's a very uh, controversial topic. Um, I, you write about my, my parents. The first time I ever went to England, Bobby's didn't carry. They had sticks. They didn't have weapons. I think they do now. Yeah. Well, actually, I've, I've had several armed police from the UK on, on the show. Now, their special response still, they don't carry. Each of the Bobbies don't. But these teams, you know, they, they, have, them, they have them in their cars. And they're the, the kind of SWAT version of, of the British police. We've gotten pretty radical. You know, I mean, it's it's gotten pretty radical on a lot of, a lot of sides. It's easy to go radical. Uh, radical extremists on all sides. And that's kind of scary, you know. And to me it's it's sad that i i truly in my heart believe the media has been a huge part of that you know the 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 information that we're getting is not necessarily always true and we all we don't know where to look for real information anymore you know i've been working really hard at getting firsthand information from the people i know that work in washington or secret service agents or people on the ground first responders and there's information that you hear is just so off. You know, you, you, you talk to people who were there and they say, you know, this is what happened X, Y, and Z. And then you turn on the news and the news just blows it up and it, and it wasn't what happened. And it just gins people up and, and the media has just a huge responsibility that they're not adhering to. Well, it's I, for money too. That's what people oh, understand. It's, it's to sell ah. advertising. That's what makes it so nauseating. It's, so, it's not about delivering news. Yeah. It's literally, I want you to be watching so that when the Dove commercial comes on, I can make $5 million. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Babe, we need Dove. I forgot we need soap. God, 
bless those people <laughs> you know and you start getting angry and mad I, you know it's it's been a wild ride i'll tell you this you know a few years ago i um when i was going through a really dark time i i kind of got bored with life i was like what's left right i lived this kind of crazy life and grew up young and went to the marines and then did hollywood for decades and traveled abroad and saw the majority of the world and taught in vietnam worked with kids and and just before i fell in love i just said yeah it's what else what else and i was i was really kind of checked off all the boxes which led me to a pretty dark place like i was like that's it i i, I don't want to be here anymore and i don't like the direction things are going so um i don't know if i really want to be here anymore and i was bored i am not bored anymore like if if there's anything right now it it is what is next I wake up every morning and I'm like, what happened? What, what happened today around the world in here in the United States around in our neighborhood? Like every day seems like a, a like a, a total new day to rebuild or destroy. Either something's being built up or something's being destroyed. I'm certainly not bored anymore. And, um, it's, uh, it's, it's been a, you know, I took you on a very small journey of, of, of my life experiences, but it's, it's, I've never been more excited for the next like 20 years. Like it's really incredibly fascinating. And for me, it's a good place to be to help other people because, um, I run into people who I look like a few years ago and I see it in them. I go, Oh, I see the depression. I see the darkness. I, I can see the alcohol or drugs or whatever it is that you're doing. I can just clock it. You know, most people dismiss actors as just like people who just, you know, run around memorizing lines and pretending. And most of them are. Some of them are. But really, the, the, if, if you understand the craft of it, all, all, all we've really done, all I've done for the last 20 years is study human behavior. So I've just gotten a part, prepared for a role, or not gotten a part and prepared for something I wanted to get. And I've just said, who is this person? And what are they going through? And what are they on? And what's their past? And what does that do to somebody? And you just kind of put yourself through this gamut of different psychologies and experiences and traumas. And depending on the people that you play, you know, it can be pretty um, revealing the darker sides of human beings. I mean, depending on, you know, what your career path is. Like some people get a good career path of just doing voiceover for cartoons. Well, God bless you. I, you know, I've gotten the career path of playing some pretty horrendous people, dark people, people, you know, serial killers, rapists, murderers. Um, and you really, at the end of the day, your job is to study human beings. And so I, if I get, if I engage you and I sit with you and I get to talk with you and listen to you, I, I can kind of figure out what's going on. I can kind of do a character breakdown of, what you are and pretty much 90, 90, 85%. I'm, I'm roughly hitting the right things. I can look at you and I can say, you know, you got a method, you got a method addiction. I don't No, not you, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I can look at someone. No, exactly. Does. Yeah. But you, can, I, yeah. you can, cause you, you've, you've been there yourself and all you, like you said, you, you've you dissected. Got, you got a cocaine work. issue. You have a drinking problem. Um, because these are all the things that we've studied and we've, we've toyed with and we've played with. You know, um, you have serious depression issues. You have a certain weight carried that you're carrying in your shoulders or your back. 
uh, your posture, your the way you the way you have a hard time looking at somebody or whatever it is. And in a minute, like we're in this deep conversation about, you know, some kind of traumatic experience that they had and, and you can walk people through that. And I know you're doing it, you know, with this podcast for, for first responders and, and I, you know, that's why I wanted to do this with you because, you know, it's, it's our job to kind of overcome our, our traumas and, and then help somebody else with theirs. I mean, that's kind of the journey I'm, I'm guessing from your, your book, one more light that's probably the journey of this is what I went through and now I'm I'm coming out on the other end trying to trying to help people who are going through the same thing that I went through of, of, of some some semblance absolutely yeah. and there's all kinds of things some is just observational some is you know back injuries that almost ended my career and you know depression through divorce and but it's not like I have this powerful story I think it's the, the polar opposite like this is the other 98% of us that weren't at this horrific event that are just trying to navigate life and and it's just to me it's get, getting people to question the way that we've been taught some of the things that we've been told and you use the analogy behind the curtains exactly it just rip those damn curtains off the railings and show you know this is yeah. this is obesity for example like you go to your doctor here's these pills it'll get your blood pressure numbers down well we see you still die so it's through our lens it just gives people a different kind of view of humanity through the responder's eyes and there's a lot of lessons and so i just wanted to put it on paper and kind of present it to the world it's great you did it because you know material like this is you know if you find yourself in a dark place this is the stuff that you you need to be reading and you need to be pulling yourself out you can pull yourself out i you know i went through save a warrior with some incredible human beings and I think 1200 people have gone through it now, give or take, don't quote me, but that's, that's the rough number. I believe we've lost six out of the 12. And these are all people who are on the verge of not having another day. They were done. I know I was. And, um, you know, what I learned in that course, uh, the guy who runs it, this, this kind of Yoda genius named Jake Clark, he just kind of pulls you out of yourself. Just kind of look around, like look at your look look at you from the umpire's position, rather than being in the game. Right, we're all in the game. You start talking about your story, you're telling it from the pitcher's point of view or the catcher's point of view, but you're in the game. Why don't Why don't you tell your story from the umpire's point of view? A guy who basically has to call balls and strikes, but win or lose, he's, he doesn't he doesn't favor either team. He's just calling the game. Look at your life from that position. Tell your story from that position, from from that viewpoint. And that, like, I was like, who the hell is it? What what did he just say? Because I've been telling my story from the pitcher's position. You know, games on the line, full count. You know, what are these people going to think if I don't throw the strike? You know, what, what are they going to think if I say this or do this? Then I just started telling my story from the umpire's perspective and the umpire sees everything. And when you talk about pulling back and revealing the curtain, the, the hard part about doing that is people don't want it to be pulled back that are still behind it. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And because you're not behind it anymore, you're like, you guys, you should kind of just show people what's there, you know, show them the wizard of Oz, just show how little the guy is. And, um, you know, you start pulling that back for people who aren't ready for it. It, it becomes kind of, you can see it, it. It really gets upsetting for people because they, they build this thing bigger than what it really is. And, and, um, 
it's imp- it's just important to kind of say, hey, look, at, we need to start being really honest with one another. Like, you know, stop believing in these facades. You know, um, we're 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 a culture we're we're a culture of fake heroes. You know, I I get it. You want to believe Robert Downey Jr. You know, is Iron Man. I get it. You know, and in many ways, in his own world, he is. You know, what he overcame and what he accomplished and, and, you know, there couldn't have been a better actor to put on that suit based upon what he overcame. I mean, he, it's why he did the character so well, but there are certain people that, you know, they are not who they play on TV. They are not, um, they are not running into burning buildings. They, they are not worthy of your idolization. Um, let them entertain you, but, but don't think that they're, um, they're not really portraying who they, these people really are, you know, they're most Marines, most first responders, firefighters, police officers, X amount of years on the job. They're, they're pretty broken. I sat with my crew that I went with Anaheim, four of us all have been injured. Two have been like severe PTSD, you know, one just overcame COVID and these are, you know, men that stood on the diamond, like you said, on the footprints that were probably some of the most physically and mentally resilient humans prior to entering that profession. And, and it's funny, they keep the facade, right? They keep the armor. So one of the things that Jake talks about in Save a Warrior is dropping the armor, right? Because I, I went in physically, like, de- depleted. I had lost, I'd been in a major motorcycle accident. I'd lost the use of my left arm. My shoulder was just done. I, I, I put on 20 pounds. And when I did, um, my last film, last full measure, I had done 92 days of two a day boot camps at training mate, my buddy, Luke Milton, he's an Aussie. He's got this incredible workout routine, um, that he puts his, his school through. It's a, he's, I think he's got like three of them now, but I don't know what COVID's done to, his classes because I believe they're all online now, but he put me through 92 days of two a days at 43 years old. When I came out of that, I, I was more fit than I was in the military. I was ripped. And I was like, I was getting like to that Hugh Jackman, like level of like shredded. shredded. <laughs> and I did it all without steroids. Not to say Hugh did. I don't know. I, I don't know, but I, I know I did it naturally with, with Luke and, uh, and boy, I was, I was it. I did the movie. I was at the top of my game and then my life fell apart. My entire life. So that was after you shot full last full measure. Yeah. It's, it fell apart in different stages. Right. And it fell apart. I built myself up. It fell apart. You know, I got, I, I went through this thing with this, this, this really unfortunate uh, decision to, to do something in my career, to be a part of something. And, and that, that something didn't, it just, once again, wasn't who I was. Okay. I, I did not get into the profession of acting or making films so I could sell my autograph and photograph to people in an extraordinary amount of money. Um, I get it. It, 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 some people love it. It's, it's a thing. It's, it's like a concert, right? Um, I, I can, I can tell you that the majority of musicians would play for free if they could, but you know, if you're putting out a product, people are going to pay to see it. And you know, if you're going to go to, um, stagecoach you're going to you know pay extraordinary amounts of money to go see your bands play because they have people to get paid um i just didn't want to play that that game 
And I tried to play that game for a little bit where I pretended I was more famous than I was. I really wasn't that famous, but because I was part of this show, I, I, I got on this like trek of just making a godly amount of money, just taking photos and autographs and being kind of idolized because I played a, a tiny little part on a TV show. And that once again felt uncomfortable for me. It, it was like, it was like a skin I didn't feel comfortable in. Um, but I, but I tried it and I was like, this, this seems fun. And I got to see a lot of, a lot of the world, but on whose dollar, like on whose, on who's paying for that. And so I, I, I had a very uncomfortable experience with all that. I, I didn't enjoy it. I, I, that was like fame. And, and like I, we talked earlier, like it's a, it's a drug, it's a serious drug because you can get up on stage and like say anything and people laugh and giggle and applaud and. You're like, man, maybe I should be a comedian, but you're really, I'm hilarious. I'm hilarious. It's just, <laughs> no, people are idolizing you and they're not even, they don't even know who you are, but they're idolizing the character that you play on the show, right? It's the show. And like, I just didn't, that's not what I wanted. And then I just had awful experiences with trying to, uh, trying to like appease people and try to like say the right thing or do the right thing. And then I realized real quickly, like we talk about obesity. I had this whole thing about talking to my fans on my show and, and telling them like, look, let's all lose weight together. Let's, let's do an exercise program. Let's do a challenge. And I was like, Oh, I was just big into that. And like, let's do this 30 day challenge where everybody gets up and they exercise. And you know, maybe we don't have to be on drugs. Maybe we don't have to take pills. Maybe we don't, you know, who are you to tell us we can't take our medicines? And I was like, <laughs> Oh shit. I opened that Pandora's box and uh, you know, that wasn't my intention, Yeah, but I was but just, you ceased to become the character. You became a human being, a human being trying to tell people like, just get up and exercise. Like, let's get on a routine and let's stop taking these, uh, d depressants. Uh, you can't tell people that like, I'm not a doctor. I just opened a whole box of shitstorm, And, and then I just didn't really mesh with er everything involved with, with, with the whole thing. And so when that all fell apart, it, it was tragic. Like, it was like, what am I doing here? Like, I was a guest star on a show for four episodes. This is not, like, this doesn't define me. This isn't my show. This isn't like, you know, I came in, I, I wanted to make movies. I wanted to tell story. So, but you need fans. So it's like, then you're in this weird place. And then you're about social media numbers and followings and like watching your numbers go up. And like, I think at some point I had like over a hundred thousand altogether on like social media, like from Twitter to Instagram to Facebook. And then you're kind of, you're held by those people, by the big tech guys, like my fan base, my numbers, my following is what people are asking me when I walk into a room, like, Oh, how many followers do you have? Like, what do you mean? Like I'm, I, I, what happened to auditioning for a role? Like cares, right? You're getting beat out by people and they're, they're offering jobs to people because they've got 100,000 more followers than you. That became like gross. It just That's became gross. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. It's like being a firefighter and being like, you know, there's a guy who's fit. His score is this score. Your score is your, I don't know if you could really carry a kid out of a burning building. How many followers do you have though? Like a million? Let's take the guy. Let's take him. He's got a million followers. But you work on your followers then come back. It, it then becomes not about the art or the craft. And so that changed. And, and that was a disaster. Like it was just, it was like, okay, now that's out, that's done. I'm, I'm through with that. And, and then, uh, and then I just had a really horrid experience with, you know, a very powerful individual in Hollywood with a lot of, a lot of, uh, a weight behind them. And, um, 
I endured something that that made me realize that I had been sexually molested as a child at like four by my grandfather and and I never really believed that people could block out things like, this is the royal marine grandfather or no okay. god no i love okay uh, god bless. No, god, yeah. <laughs> no he was not british uh you know he was from chicago so uh yeah he um he you know i both me and my sister and i, I you know she's told her story publicly so I, I both her and i went through it but she had remembered it at a young age and kind of exposed him so he was out of our life you know uh by the time i was like nine he was gone because of uh what she had you know, basically said, which is always, Oh my God, grandpa did that to you. Like we, we, we loved, I loved my grandfather. Like he was the one who bought me the millennium Falcon and let me watch, you know, rated our movies and, and I would always stay with him and, and he took care of me. And whenever we had a babysitter, he was always like, I'll watch the kids. And now we know why, but I, I had blocked all that out. And when I had this experience with, with a big powerhouse in Hollywood, I, I remembered everything with my grandfather. It all came flooding back in one moment, in one moment. And it was like my entire career was gone. Like I was like, that's it. Like this person is someone who either I get over this and I take the deal or I say no to this person and, and walk away. And that's it. I'll, I don't, I won't work in this town based upon who they're connected to. It's just that tight. And they don't even have to tell the story because they, they have access to everyone's phone call. So they just go, you know, who are you considering for that? Oh, yeah, you know, I wouldn't. And that's it. And I knew that immediately. And so there was that loss of two decades of working as an actor. And then there was like, wait, this explains my entire life. This is why I am still single at 40 some odd years old, why every relationship didn't work out, why I struggled with things sexually, why, why I have depression, why I grind my teeth, why I have these nightmares. It just like, it was like the usual suspects at the end when he realizes Kevin Spacey's Kaiser Soze and he looks up at the board and he realizes like, oh my, all the things that he was saying was he was just reading off that board. Like those were the images that just went, da, 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 da. I could remember the scotch my grandfather drank. He drank seven and seven. I remember the alcohol he drank, seven and seven, Seagram seven. I remember what he ordered. I remember how he ate his eggs. I remember his license plate number. I remember the places that he did everything to me. I remember how he did them to me. I remember how he made everything enjoyable and it wasn't painful. I remember how he taught me everything that I know about sex at four. And then I was told by the person that this is okay that this is what grandfather's jobs are to do and that this is kind of known within the inner circles of the elites that grandfathers and are supposed to educate their children and, and grandchildren sex that's their job their jobs to teach them it happened it happened to them as well and so don't be don't let that just don't let that it that's fine travis what your grandfather did was he taught you how to be very good he taught you intimacy he taught you love like he did it for from a loving place, would you have rather had it been somebody else that you didn't know, some stranger, some person you met in school? Like, like I don't know who I'd rather it have been, but I certainly don't think it should be your grandfather. No, four years old. Like, I, maybe I don't know, like an eighteen-year-old girl with good lips. I mean, that, that's who I take my first one from. And yeah, I, I, you know, know, I have different images of, of who I thought should teach me sex. Um, 
but that was their response. So it was, it was the career gone. It was the, the realization of, um, it was the realization of who I really was. And, and this is who you are. It, it's like having your back broken and realizing you'll never walk again. Like that, that's the equivalent that I could, that I, you know, it's like Christopher Reeve when he broke his back, everyone's like, but you're Superman. Like they'll fix you. You'll get up, you'll fly. And it's like, no, he's gonna, he's gonna be in that chair for a while. And he's gonna, he's gonna basically have to talk out of a tube. That's the bone you broke when you crashed that horse, dude. That's, that's what was broken when, when that, when, when looking at this person who looks identical to my grandfather at his age now as my grandfather was, that was the bone that was broken. It was like, snap. And then it was, wait, you're telling me that you and the, the network you surround yourself with, this, this people that control the inner workings of this industry, kind of think this is, this, is, this is how it's done? This is normal? You guys have all had this chat, and this is kind of like the... The understanding and, and did, did they did they believe it when they were four year olds or was it when they became the grandfathers you know what i mean like yeah i don't know, you know i mean were we, they ever on the receiving end of this great educational philosophy it just kind of made me blink a bunch like like wait wait a minute you know it's the same realization i had when i stood on the steps and they said you know you are no longer a citizen of the united states like wait, is, is this kind of how people think at this level? Like, is this how your network thinks as a whole? And, and, you know, whether all that is applied to everyone, which I don't think it is, but it's applied to enough powerful people in the industry to know that this is kind of standard and that everybody has had it happen to them. Now, however they view it and whether they, they, they continue that on, it, it, it seems like that's the underlining of an industry that has so much abuse to it. I mean, you're talking about several young actors, you know, all the way up to, let's say, Drew Barrymore talking about doing cocaine at, you know, at a young age and partying. Like, what, why is this young girl at a Hollywood party? Why is Anthony Rapp at Kevin Spacey's house at midnight when he's 14 years old where a 28 year old Kevin Spacey could come on to him sexually. Why is a 14 year old at his house? Why, why do you go to these pool parties with, you know, all these very famous directors and actors and, and there's, there's teenagers and people who are prepubescent swimming naked in the pool. Well, Michael Jackson's a perfect example. Michael Jackson's and a perfect I, again, example. I, I had his posters all over my wall when I was a young boy. So I'm not anti Michael Jackson, but when this started coming out, I'd be looking around going, am I the only person that thinks that this dude should have been thrown in prison? <laughs> oh, no, but he's one of the greatest singers we ever had. Yeah. And? And? He can sing in fucking prison. prison. He can sing the rest of his life. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it was like, I mean. That's fucking hilarious. You know what I mean? We can record it. it. It's actually a really good recording box. It's a really yeah, good. Yeah, there you go. It's acoustically. It, it's acoustically <laughs> sound. It's incredible. You can get your cup and put it on the bars and have some beats going. But either way, we need yeah. to keep you away from our fucking children. And you yes. know, don't get me wrong. That I'm sure there was an element of children placement by parents, by mm -hmm. you know, whatever. And maybe he was so broken that he was innocent. But regardless, that whole situation was wrong. It's a cycle, right? So we talk a lot about breaking the cycle, right? And so I felt at that point, either I was going to be a part of the cycle or I was going to break it. Now, breaking it means that I had to give up two decades of what I had 
trained for and studied and what, what I was on the cusp of succeeding at like this impossible industry to succeed at. I was there. And then I had to realize there's no way to do this unless I break the cycle. There's no way to do this unless I step back, get healthy, heal myself. And then without throwing any names out there or anybody under the bus, expose this, pull the curtain back. And that, that's not something that's easy to do if you want to ever work again in Hollywood. It just isn't. And that's, uh, but, um, it needs to be done by somebody and, and multiple people have tried. I'm not, I'm not the only one standing on a pedestal here. Like a lot of people have tried, but we, we keep making excuses. And with all due respect to Woody Allen, I just can't wrap my head around adopting a three month year old child with my wife. And then when that child reaches a certain age to be sexual that you decide that you're going to be sexual with her and then leave your wife for her and then marry her. But yet you go somewhere and Woody Allen's there with Sung Yi on the red carpet. She's his wife now. That was his three month year old child. Somehow it's, it's okay. Cause he makes great independent movies. Um, and that's not gossip. That's not conspiracy. That's just what Hollywood has accepted. Like, I, I don't know why that's accepted. I don't know why that when you become a huge movie star and you make the big bucks, like you do the Titanic and, and your Leo, that your next movie that all your agents and managers are pushing you to do is a, a small independent Woody Allen film, right? There seems to be something there that we need to look at and say, maybe we shouldn't be picking you know, pushing young kids to, to work with a man who married his three month year old adopted daughter. Maybe, you know, regardless if they have a successful marriage and are happy, like regardless, like regardless if he waited till she was 18 and whatever, whatever, whatever the truth is behind that, it, it, it seems it's your daughter. It's your daughter. It's your daughter. I, anybody who has an adopted daughter, that adopted a child at that young of an age, hell, even like an older age, even if they, they were 10 or 12, you, you still take on the responsibilities of teaching them about life and then letting them go find their, their partner. And it came back to that, no, this is the way we think, that the father's job is to teach or the grandfather's job is to teach. Didn't it, didn't it fall under some sort of incest law, though? Because I mean, I know it's accepted largely in the state I live in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there is supposed to be. I mean, obviously, it's not genetics, and I get that's kind of yeah. where the initial thing went. But I thought that would be incest, wouldn't it? You're not supposed to be able to marry your relatives. You're not. And I mean, you know, Roman Polanski can't step on this uh, on the soil, or he'll be arrested for for charges that he was accused of. But yet, he made a great movie with Adrian Brody and got an Oscar. It's just interesting, right? It's interesting what we celebrate. And it was interesting to be part of this group for a little bit in my life and to, to, to go, is this what I want to reflect? And then there's the other wonderful side of it with some wonderful artists who are putting wonderful art into the world and are sane and are, you know, but you, you know, you got to call out, you got to call it out when, when you see it. And, you know, I, 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 I've been studying quite a bit the, um, the 1940s era and, and the the German army and how I was watching it last night, how, how Hitler came into power. And at some point they could have stopped that at some point they could have said, wait a minute, this doesn't feel good. Something's off here. The way you're treating these people and what your intentions are with them seem off. Someone had to stop that. And 
we didn't and our entire world ended up in a war with them and and it just created such a huge scar for our humanity like at some point when it comes to hollywood and we've seen it recently with harvey and we've seen it recently with epstein you have to say this is not okay as a society like let kids be kids and let adults be adults and and that's not popular to say in hollywood it's not popular to you know to call people out you know i'm sure i'll never work with woody allen but i i don't know if i really want to work with him you know i'd love to have worked with him as a director and as an artist but you know that's like saying yeah as a military guy i would have loved to worked with hitler <laughs> what, a, what a brilliant strategic, strategic mind you know i mean but as a human being me you know i mean it's and then, you know, you, words get twisted and people will say, oh, you're comparing Woody Allen to Hitler. And it's like, no, I'm just saying at some point we have to we have to you have to be responsible for the decisions you made. And when he made a decision to marry his daughter, maybe it was his decision not to be surrounded by kids on a film set. Well, and you use that, that um, analogy of uh, World War Two. I was having this exact conversation with my friends this morning. Um, you know, we 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 talk about. um you know, a nation, our, our enemies, as, oh, it's with, we're in war against Afghanistan or Iraq. And I get, I make a point of all the people that come on here to, to get them to talk about what they actually saw. And there's two things. There's the atrocities of these murderous few, and there's the majority who are mothers, fathers, kids doing exactly the same thing as is happening in the UK and America and Australia and everywhere else, just trying to get on with their life. And I, I look at that with, with Nazis, you know. Do you honestly think that most German farmers and bakers and butchers and, you know, all, all the different trades that were just in their villages doing their thing realized that in Poland there was a camp where they were throwing Jews into an oven? Mm -hmm. You know, probably not. Probably not. There was no internet, you know. Yeah. And again, even if there was, we've seen what the internet does if you, you know, allow the wrong people to feed you your information. So, you know, there's, it, it's about money and power. And that's what, you, you know, you're talking about. You're not talking about the craft of acting. You're talking about an abuse of power. And when it's it's so artificially, you know, it's just it's just so humanly wrong to have that much power. And you read Tribe, which you know, I know is a prereq for Saw. Sebastian's been on the show twice now. He talks about the Iroquois and that communal element that is present in the military and the fire service in that where, you know, yes, there might be a rank system, but, you know, basically if you're... If you're not pulling your weight, you you throw out the tribe. You know, if you're greedy, you can't take possessions. You're you know you're moving nomadically across the the um you know the the plains. So there is no one person that has so much money and power. So it it corrupts people. So this this is what this is about. It's not about the art of acting. It's not about the military. It's when you allow people to have so much power over other people who are no lesser than you. It completely distorts the equation, and, it, and to me, it creates monsters. It does, and it has, and and those monsters don't even know they're monsters, you know. And I say this all the time: How did Harvey Weinstein even know he was a monster if he had a room full of celebrities who were adored applauding him, saying at every award they got, "This is because of Harvey." This and there's there's a, a wonderful um, montage of actors thanking Harvey. It's it's kind of it's pretty incredible because none of them have come forward and said, got that wrong. None of them. Um, and then anyone who have, have tried to put this roundabout spin on it that they didn't know. 
And that is the biggest bunch of bullshit that we all know. Like you said, it was part of the part of the culture, right? It was. But do you think Harvey was sitting there going like, I'm a monster. Like he was like, I'm, I'm getting applauded. I'm getting adored. I'm having these actresses win these huge awards and saying that they owe their career and their dreams and everything to me. And look at me. Like, I mean, they built the beast. We build the beasts. We, we feed, we feed the, the animal. I mean, I've even said this about, I said this, you know, years ago when I was, when, when Trump started to gain some, some, some energy, I, I remember watching him in the, um, I remember watching him in the, in the uh, Republican, what's that called? Where the the Republicans get together and they they um, the the Republican convention, the, the GOP convention, and you know there he is with you know Ted Cruz and Jeb Bush and God, I mean the the lovely Ben Carson <laughs> couldn't be one of the like sweeter human beings, and he just was like mowing through them like political gloves off like i am not a politician and however whatever rules you guys have set like they don't apply to me and i just remember going oh my god like this is not good i remember that was my first thought right it's funny now i i'm a supporter of him but it that was my first thought right and you know to get even deeper than that i'm i'm more i'm i'm just a supporter of the office of president of the united states until it's no longer held by that individual i did it with clinton when i served for him i did it with obama and i i said okay you know like dave chappelle said in his opening got you know got to give a guy a chance he's got a job to do but i was screaming at the top of my lungs to my friends and people in the media stop feeding this guy stop covering him stop you can't stop talking about him. Stop giving him all these accolades and all all this attention. He loves it. You don't understand. He, you could say whatever you want about him. It doesn't affect you. Like you know, if someone comes at you and says you're this and you're that and you're this, and they oh don't say that about me. You don't know he, that that's you're giving him energy. You're giving him light. You're feeding, feeding him after midnight. You're feeding him after midnight. And I just kept watching him grow and grow. And then finally, I just kept saying this. People are like, "What are you a Trump supporter?" I'm like, "No, I'm trying to teach you. I'm trying to give you the." tools how to defeat this this you, you want to know how to defeat this guy stop talking about him just turn it off focus on whoever you want to run against him in 2020 focus on that don't give him any coverage stop it and then all of a sudden i overnight like started getting attacked and being called a trump supporter and i was like i'm telling you how to defeat this thing and now you're telling me that i'm a supporter of him and you know this is we'll do this some other conversation the other way but they went after me so hard for trying to help them and i'm talking powerful people in the media that i'm not talking random people who were like you know f trump i'm like whatever i'm talking people who help make him who he is and i've even said it now like you know cnn and msnbc and all these medias and face they're like oh yay you know yay he you know he media elect we media elect biden like this is it they're all celebrating and it's like guys um what are you going to do without him now? Like, let's say he's gone and you can't cover him anymore. What do you, you guys just took your ratings up here and you ain't going to get that with Joe Biden. Right. Which a lot of us are like, thank God. Like we're, you know, we can, we think we can come down and relax. Right. Uh, there's a big portion of this country that won't, but, but for you and I, and I think people like-minded, we, we don't want to be fired up. We don't want to be ginned up anymore. We, no. we want it. To well, I need you haven't presented anyone that's worth getting excited about anyway. So yeah, what are these guys going to do now that they don't have Trump to cover in the news? Right. They've, they've, what are they going to cover? Like you're going to turn on CNN now and go in other news. 
And they're going to go, how do we boost, how do we boost ratings? How do we get those clicks? What do we do? What do we create? What kind of chaos can we create? Maybe we'll just start pinning racist stuff. Who's going to be the 2024 candidate? We'll call them a racist. And that to me is the real enemy, you know, and, and that's, it's less about supporting Donald Trump and not supporting the, the media anymore. Like it's just gotten to that place where I'm like, you guys, you guys created this. You did this. You, you don't cover him. He doesn't get as big as he got. Like you guys, you guys turned people away and you attacked people. And, you know, um, even with the Bernie thing we were talking about earlier, like look at how quickly they turned on Bernie, like, and, and it's just, he was it. He was the candidate. And people are like, oh, but we want an honest politician, and someone that doesn't, you know. They, um, then they give you yeah, Joe and, Biden. And, yeah, exactly. And then Bernie's like, hey, I've been here for a really long, long time. No, and no I'm, laptops here. Yeah, I'm trying to do good things. <laughs> yeah. Like my policies actually help people. And they're like, ah, shut up. You're just trying to take all the rich people's money and give it to the poor. They ate him up. Yeah. But And here's the thing with Bernie that I felt fascinating was what do they got on the guy? What do they got on him? Oh, he's old. But, but so, I mean, you know, he doesn't have the crime bill. He doesn't have a son who's got a, an addiction issue. He doesn't have 47 years in politics. He doesn't have uh, horrible things come out of his mouth, you know, um, attacking blue collar workers. And it is incredible to me. It is incredible to me that, that they chose the two people they chose. And, and, you know, like I said, I, I would have been a much, much happier person if, if they would have let the person who I genuinely think should have been. Bernie had Bernie had the support. I told all my friends who were Bernie supporters. I said, "It's a shame. It's a real big shame." But once again, we get back to the media. We get back to how quickly the media just turn turns that off. Uh, there's a little bit of a Bernie buzz. Yep, you're off. You're on. You're off. And yeah, they, because it wouldn't have been a hype. He would have just got in. And again, yeah. you know, it's not about him being left right. I just think we needed a big, as I told before we start recording, yeah. a big dose of gratitude. Mm -hmm. that we woke up in America. That in itself should be, you know, huge. Incredible. But then. You know, because we are a wealthy nation, applying some of our, you know, changing some of our policies, doing more proactive stuff with health and education, prisons, and then using that money to, to help people that are in a dark place, whether it's addiction, whether it's homelessness, whether it's just being born in a poor area of America and raising everyone up. That's what I saw. Altruism is, is the key. Oh, he's a socialist. He's, well, if socialism is national health in England, then I'm a socialist because I've seen how good that system is when it's supported properly, not stripped to the bare bones like it is at the moment. So if that's socialism, then I'm for that. But, you know, I'm 46 years old and I don't even have a doctor because I'm healthy and I don't have a problem giving my money to take care of the elderly, the infirm and the, you know, the, the children of the world. So if you're, what you're telling me is you don't want to vote for someone who's going to force you to maybe use your money to help someone else rather than just yourself. Yeah. Then maybe you need to look in the mirror. And I think, um, one of the big, big issues was that, you know, you, you came in, um, you know, Trump came in highly against Obamacare and like, I don't know enough about the ins and outs of how it all works, but it, there, there still isn't anything after four years. And, and there was a lot he did, but there still isn't anything after four years that deals with our health issue. And, and that's, that's the big, the big issue is at the end of the day, all this other stuff all goes away. If you're not healthy, exactly. the, it, health should have been the number one thing you came in and addressed and fixed or corrected, uh, whatever, whatever that may be. And, and so like, you know, we should be able to have these conversations like this and without being attacked or, and understanding things without just being triggered. And it just seems like we're not there anymore. Um, 
And like I said, they've kind of forced everyone to pick a side. And, and it is the media. At. And you know what? What is funny because I've talked to you know f- f- uh, British people that don't. Aren't, I mean, excuse me, people live in America that are from other countries. And one of the most glaring things is you know oh you hear oh fucking CNN blah 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 and the other side's like oh fucking Fox. Fox. Have you seen your news stations? Put them side by <laughs> side. side the same thing. This screen split in four. Four dickholes are arguing with each other. That's not, it's not news. There's ticker tapes going across. Oh, breaking news, blah, blah, blah. And it's like you are literally, it's like you held a mirror, you know, and it's, it's the two opposite images, but it's exactly the same scaremongering. Yeah. Just one's for the blue, one's for the red. Crips and bloods. Did you ever see the, uh, the um the compilation of all the news from all around the states put together in that one, one story and yeah, they were all terrifying. saying the same thing exactly like verbatim. word for word it was a script it was a script that they were all reading and you're just like that 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 was i saw that about three and a half years ago i'm telling you there was a lot of things that made me that made me step back and just go okay you know got to pick a side got to stay on this side now now i have no problem with with addressing the issues on stand, standing on this side i have no problems i i can address them and i won't attack you just don't attack me, but there's a lot of things I've seen over here that just I, it, I'm not okay with, and I and I, I you got to be vocal. You've got to say, hey, I don't like this person, but I I don't like this either. You can't say I don't like this person. I dislike this person so much that none of this stuff matters because any of this address means that I'm siding with this person. Like where that where that disconnect happened it got it got really dangerous. Um, and I, and I do think, and I, I've said it time and time again with not with, you know, I've said it in a, in a derogatory way, but I, I don't, I don't really mean it. Stockholm syndrome was a real thing. It was a real thing that these Nazis would come in and they would beat, abuse, murder people's families and end up marrying the daughter who would stay with them and say, but I love him. You know, we see it all the time in, in law enforcement where, you know, it's like, the guy's beating you six times. Why are you staying with this guy? Because I love him. That's that's Stockholm syndrome. That is an actual syndrome that they've defined as we can't make sense of why you want to stay with somebody that hurts you, destroys you, has abused you. Trump derangement syndrome, I believe, is the next Stockholm syndrome where you hate someone so much because you've been told to hate this person by so many different outlets that you excuse all this other stuff happening and you can't you can't say anything negative about any of those because you think it empowers this person that that's a dangerous place to be like you've got to be able to stand on this side and say okay i don't like x y and z about this person but we need to address these things that aren't okay either yeah and about and, the other person and about the other person or about just policies in general or about state like you said country. state of the country or or sovereignty or protecting borders like um there's so many things that, that you have to be able to address and and say but i still don't i'm still not voting for this person but i have to recognize these issues defunding the police like when i first heard that i go that can't be real you know, I did a whole entire documentary about saving sharks called Extinction Soup and what it would mean for the ocean if we removed the sharks from the ocean um, because they're being killed 70 million a year. And it's it's an incredible journey I took two years making this documentary. But it was a big comparison to like taking sharks out of the ocean would be the same thing as taking police out of the ocean, taking the military away. Like you need you need those entities like you just do they're just there like no one wants to get bit by a shark no one wants to get pulled over by a cop <laughs> like 
but you know, there's always going to be those assholes going at 185 miles per hour down the street that someone's got to pull them over. Someone's got to ticket them. Somebody is going to go and be abusive or, or, or violent or try to rob a bank. Someone's got to, someone's got to stand the line. I wish we lived in an utopian world. You know, you talk a lot about the, the, the thing with the drug uh, situation and how that could be fixed. Yeah. I mean, th- there's a lot of ways to fix things, but until we do, someone's got to hold the line somebody and and it's not a job that i would want to do i just wouldn't i did i you know i worked with the boston pd for for six weeks um got you know deputized they didn't give me a weapon but i got to make arrests and i got to work in uh, the park there um the, the beautiful park where i got to see where all the the um the drug dealers and the prostitution and man i can't look at that park anymore the way i did before i i they revealed a whole different underworld to me in that park six weeks six weeks. six weeks and these guys have been doing it for 20 years and you know i don't know what it is for police i don't know if it's like in the first two or three years but you just go this is like i can't come in and fix anything so i just kind of have to maintain order i just kind of have to come in and take this guy off because this guy's a bad guy and maybe this guy will lead to this guy and maybe maybe we'll maybe we'll help one person today but like the fixing the system oh the the level of of crime that's happening right now in in that park alone is just staggering, and it's like pick and choose who do you want to, who do you want to arrest today? Yeah, well, and it's like I was saying. So take that same park, and there's no illicit drug trade. Yeah. What criminal activities are going to happen? Because I mean, let's be honest, a lot of prostitution is enabled by addiction as well. You know, there's poor you know men and women, or you got to be high. To, you got to be high. Yeah, I mean, to live that life. Yeah, they're they're feeding that habit. You know, yeah. so that's how they earn the money. I don't know any sober hookers. Mm. <laughs> no, no, but I, don't, I don't really know any hookers but I'm just saying yeah. like you know most of them aren't most of them aren't like you know yeah well I've run a lot okay. in my job and yeah, yeah none of them are you know okay. finishing their yoga practice before we pick them up <laughs> so you know and it, but it's it's so heartbreaking but what what would happen in that park you know that park tell you know yeah. if you take away illicit drugs what could people sell now we're back to just knock off you know cds and other shit but you know when you take it you put addiction where it's supposed to be in the medical community now all those police officers a aren't going to be trigger happy because there's not you know like you said talking about growing up in la well la in the 80s crips and bloods and that was all drug fed as well and that was an absolute war zone you know so those cops in la in the 80s and 90s Oh, you need to not be so aggressive. Dude, have you fucking seen what's out there? They they have Uzis and all this shit. They're it's murdering aggressive. each other. So what are you gonna do? Like go out there, oh excuse me, can you yeah. not can you not wear red and blue? Can we can we go from like a, a purple? It's a mix of the two so we can all No, you know, like you said, it's a systemic problem. And the defund the thing was absolutely ridiculous. What needs to be defunded is the illicit drug trade. And we need to come together and be like, enough is enough. You know, when you look at the history, it was founded on racism. It was on the back end of the complete, you know, breakdown, failure of alcohol prohibition. So we had a test case right there. That's why we know Al Capone, all these names. And, you know, so if we want to band together, then follow Switzerland, follow Portugal and address the the drug issue. That will affect the terrorism in the world. That will affect the violence we see on our streets. And it will affect our prison systems, our judicial systems. If we won't sit in jail for a year waiting for their case to come around. Yeah. I mean, everything, you know, so. Yeah, the, the prison system and the medical health system is, is so, you know, 
I was saying this to Alexis when we were up at Big Bear. I just go, every community should have a, a, a treatment center. Every community, every every city, every every town. South Laguna should have a treatment center that, you know, you go in and you get better. Um, you get healthy. You get, you get off you get off the drugs. You, you get into yoga. You get into mental health. You get into uh, meditation. You, you actually come up with ways to heal and get off the drugs rather than just sticking you in a five by cell, you know, and making you a criminal. And even our prison system, every community should have some sort of prison where if you commit a crime, you, you go to that prison, you, you have to stay in that, that place. And then you, you come out and you clean up the neighborhoods, you clean up the streets, you, you do community service all day long. Like you, you, cause you're getting three meals a day, you're getting fed. So you start cleaning up your community. Then you get out and you see someone litter. You're like, Hey, I spent three years cleaning that up. I, 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 Hey, I, I took spray paint off the wall and, people start to have pride because they, they are the ones who cleaned it up and just just let them sit in a cage and then release them after a certain period of time. It's just insane. I, I don't understand. I, I don't understand it. Uh, you know, that we, we can't find a healthier way around it. Like it, it seemed, like you said, it seems so simple and it most likely is. It's just a matter of re- reversing, you know, decades of, of um, corruption and ill practice and, and revealing, you know, people who profited off this and, and um putting them in the cage and took the deal (laughs) and they don't want to go in the cage you know it's kind of like i've always said with uh uh how are we supposed to you know get senators and congress people to agree on term limits they're the ones that have to vote on it so the ones voting on it would be the ones voting themselves out and we all agree like lifelong politicians is absolutely a horrible horrible formula for corruption like that's it you you go in you do your duty you you serve you become a senator for X amount of terms, you're done. You go back to your practice. You go back to being a lawyer. You go back to being a doctor. You don't get to be a career politician. Like you don't get to do 47 years as a career politician and and get to a place where then after all those years you get to be the president of the United States. Like that that seems like the most easiest way to kind of corrupt an entire system. Um, so I you know I don't have the answers for it, but you know speaking out about it and having these conversations and doing what you're doing and writing the books that you've written like you're you know i'm just i'm just honored that you're actually doing something and doing your part that's what we kind of all have to do we have to do our part and that's that's what i'm i'm working on doing and you know what got me away from everything was uh was was having to literally lose it all because you know if i would have kept the the needle in my arm uh of fame wealth and the the entertainment business we wouldn't be talking right now. You know, I'd, you have to ask my agent or manager if you could sit down and have a conversation with me, which is kind of crazy. You know, um, it just, that's, that's not what I, that's not how I wanted to live, you know? And, and I got there, I had an agent, manager, lawyer, I had all that. And I was like, I don't know, it's a good script. Let's make the movie. No, well, you should do this. And you think about this and you have to do, and you're just like, these people can't think for themselves. They choose people to think for them. And, and I just never have been a person who wants a, a group of people thinking for me. Um, so it kind of landed me here with, with you today, but, but you know, it's a small house. It's a simple place. It's two blocks from the water. And, you know, we were watching Denzel uh, Washington's house the other day, I guess it, the fire alarm went off or something and they did an overhead view of his home and it, it's like, my God. Isn't just him and his wife? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, I know. Like, are you kidding? Like, that guy must host parties every day to fill that space up. Or, you know, I've seen Wahlberg's house. And, I mean, this is, it's crazy. It's, you know, and it's very easy to get there and not look back and go, do, do we need this? 
you know, because it could have very easily been been me. But I, we look at the excess that we have, and that only that only makes other people feel less than. Yeah. They do. You know, it's just like, oh, I've worked my entire life. This is all I have. Mm-hmm. And watch MTV Cribs. Cribs and I don't even have an indoor basketball court. It must be a failure. <laughs> Something's wrong. Yeah. Yeah, the chain on my neck is not big enough. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I know uh, we wanted to chat about Last Full Measure, but how are you on time? Are you good? We're good, yeah. yeah okay. I'll keep going at the moment. So before we get to yeah. that, because I mean, I want to, you know, tie in give, you know your source story and everything but yeah so tell me about that lowest point and then when the pendulum started swinging up for you personally well it was um it was the it was the crack of the egg that was my realizing that i didn't know who i was my entire life like really kind of building this identity around a, a broken child kind of being a peter pan like a man child and um not being able to sustain any real relationship because of that right like not being able to be a man not being able to be an adult but but just because i was in the marines or just because i you know i had a fit body and i started to look like a man i i started to feel like one but realistically i i still was that that four-year-old and and so many things that i did and so many choices that i made and from the partying in Hollywood to this, the, the projects that I wanted to do, like to, to play certain people, like you couldn't pay me any money to, to play a rapist today. Like you couldn't pay me money to play, play a serial killer. Like, why would I gravitate to wanting to play these characters? Why would I want to sink into that mind at all with a healthy brain and, and not just, you know, I mean, these parts have to be played. But when I see people play them, they play them really well. I'm like, wow, you can choose any role in the world and your agents and managers and you decided to play this. And why? Like I'm getting ready to do a movie right now with um, Todd Robinson who wrote and directed Last Full Measure. And he wrote this incredible script. It's titled um, LD right now. That's a working title because we're, we're, not, we're not giving up the, uh, the real title yet. But there's a character in there named Lowry. Probably one of the darkest characters I've ever read on, on the page that I've read and I immediately read it and I went, Oh my God, if I was an actor, this is it. This is like the Edward Norton primal fear role. Right. Wow, Remember like he just stuttered and everybody felt bad for him, but he was actually, he was actually insane and he, he was the bad guy, but like just that brilliant, like thing he did and you felt so bad for him. And at the end he was just like evil. Doesn't he, doesn't he clap when they finally figure it out and he starts giggling just, like motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I remember seeing that, but, but this is, this is that type of role. This is the, you know, we're looking at Matthew McConaughey to play the lead. I think Matthew's going to want to play this role. And then I start thinking, does Matthew really want to play this role? I mean, you never know what an actor wants to do. And, and now that I'm producing, you never really understand like what those choices are. I mean, as an actor, I knew what they were when I was that age, but it's so uniquely, designed for where you're at in your life and what you're going through you know these decisions that these big movie stars that trigger money get to make it's really like what do you what do you want to spend the next you know six weeks of your life doing and to dig in and to play like that it it has to come from an unhealthy place that you haven't figured out and so I hadn't figured that out I hadn't figured out what I didn't know what it was so when it was revealed to me what it was I was crushed like I was crushed and then I had all this other stuff like all this other white noise in the background going on um you know I got uh 
I, I got accused of being inappropriate with my supernatural fans and uh i i had never been inappropriate with any of them like i i i don't even know what that looks like you know i i was so good to them and i created a charity a 501c3 to help them and because of what i started to discover about the show and the people involved and what was going on with these conventions um i was quickly figured out that i shouldn't probably be a part of this so there is a group of people that were organized to come out at this day and time and tell their me too story about me and these are people i'd never even met these are people i didn't even know i had a girl on social media say that i raped her at a convention in australia um i've never been to australia but boy, did she have a really detailed story about our experience together. And I'm reading this going like, and that's, I was reading all the comments about, oh my God, you should go to the police and you're so brave for telling your story. And, and I'm like, hey, I've never been to Australia. Like, I don't even know who this person, this isn't an ex-girlfriend, this isn't a girl I dated. And if you've ever been to a, a convention, like there's no way to assault anybody. Like you're you're around ten thousand fans. You have multiple handlers. You're in the you're in the holding room with all the other celebrities, and you go here, you go there, you go there, and you're never alone. The only time you're ever alone is when you go to the bathroom. They take you to the bathroom, and even then, you kind of have a special bathroom that only the actors and artists go to. And there is a group of girls that were told to basically come up with their stories to get me kicked off the show, just to have me removed. Like they didn't like my character. They didn't like how I kind of came onto the show and, and here I was this kind of like new actor on the show and I, I was kind of making a lot of noise. I created a charity to help them and um, I wasn't playing pretend in my real life. I was actually a Marine and I had a, you know, I was a teacher in Vietnam. And so I'd get up in the convention stage and I would start talking about um, things in real life. Cause I didn't really have much to talk about as far as the character on the show. I'd only been on a few episodes and I didn't know enough about the show to really like sit up there for an hour on stage and talk about a TV show. So I just started talking about my own life and people started asking questions like you are. And I started telling them that and, and people didn't like that and people wanted me gone. So they thought the best way to get me gone is just to come up with sexual assault stories. And it was in until the Kavanaugh hearings, which was years later and my, my career was gone. Um, my relationship with CW, uh, the show, um, WB Warner brothers was destroyed and multiple people said, Hey, we know you didn't do any of these things. You know, we've edited it. You know, these girls are just, you know, it's, a, it's the witch trials of Salem and they didn't want you on the show and they created this and we're sorry. But you know, the fact that this is kind of out here, we, we can't have you back. And I was like, what do I do? Like, I didn't do any of this. Like, I don't even, and as all this is coming out online and stuff, like my, my internal world is just imploding, but you know, you go out for a walk and no, nothing out there, nothing in the real world is, is even relevant to what's happening online. And that was like, I was so involved with social media and online and the show and building my fan base and then becoming like this celebrity that I, I had kind of disconnected from the real world. And that's, that's dangerous too. So I'd kind of go out for a walk and just be like, oh my God, like I am, I am this serial stalker of fans, which I, I think I'm the first actor to stalk his fans. I don't, I, I don't, How I've do never, you do, that? Do, you, do you sit outside their, uh, their windows and some yeah. tissues? And, yeah. You, know, you go tree. to these conventions, they pay you to <laughs> take an autograph and photograph and you decide to stalk them and harass them. I don't, I don't know. Well, you were looking back at them yeah, you, while they were looking yeah. at you. Like, did he look at me? And so every time I'd go to these conventions and I'd have to like, you know, do a photo op and girls be like, can we hug you? Can we, and you know, you want to talk about sexual harassment. 
Um, these women who are grown women, I mean, it's 99.9% all women at these conventions. They're grabbing your crotch. They're grabbing your behind. They're rubbing your chest. They're, they're like, my husband says that you're my one that I can have. And they're saying all these highly inappropriate things to you because they're meeting their actor on television. Right? So there they are. And they're like, and they're whispering in your ear. They're coming up and saying like, you know, really, I'm, you know, I'll just leave it off the air, but they'd say really highly far worse things than grab them by the vagina. Let's just put it that way, right? I mean, they were being filthy and they'd whisper it to you and then you'd have to take a photo of them and you're like, and then, and then <laughs> they look so confused. Yeah, you just look at most of my, look at most of my photos. If you, if you, if you Google like Travis convention fans, like you'll see me like, like what? Like what? And I mean, we got asked to do some interesting stuff and every time, you know, they would come up and ask like, can you, can you kind of like, bend me over and put me in this kind of, and I'd be like, I can't, my girlfriend's over there. My mom's over there. I would never went to a convention alone. I always had my mom, my girlfriend, my, my, my family member, my manager. I was never alone, which, which looking back is smart, right? You should always have someone with you. And they would be like, I just want you to kind of like bend me over and like pull my hair. And I'd be like, no, no, I can't like my, that's my mom, you know? And by the way, that's your daughter. She's like six. And I don't think she should see mom. Okay, then fine. Can you just kind of hold me like, I'm like, okay. I and mean, it was always like awkward, but they're paying you. Right. So you, you kind of feel a little bit, what am, what am I, what am I doing here? Like you want to meet an actor, you want to take a photo, you want an autograph. Great. Especially with kids. Like that's, that's amazing. Like here, but all of a sudden all this, this information started like kind of pouring online and girls were telling their Travis Wade story. And I'm like, who are these people? And where did this happen? You know, one gal said, I pushed, I sneaked away from the crowd and pushed her up against a hallway wall and pulled up her dress and, and inserted myself and told, and, and choked her and told her I better, you know, better not say anything. And then I went back on stage and, and she couldn't look at, like, it's just horribly detailed, crazy details. And you're reading it like uh, this, this horrific novel that you're the star of, <laughs> you know, you're like, wait, like, why, why is this happening? But um, suffice it to say, it worked. And, and I, it is one thing coming from someone who was, was raped and molested by their grandfather at, at four. Being accused of sexual assault you never did is pain, more painful than that. Yeah. I, can, I can say that being on both ends of the spectrum. And what also is more painful is to accuse people of stuff they've never done the the effect that has on people who have actually been assaulted. The fact that they're the ones not coming out. They're not going on social media. They're not detailing their stories. They're quietly sobbing and telling a trusted family member, if that, yeah, or know. drowning in sorrows with alcohol, drugs, they're, they're hiding it. They're not like, look at me, I'm a victim. And then what we also found out was this group of young ladies, um, from all around different places. So there was no way to kind of go after them at the time legally. At the time, I, I couldn't do that legally. And we had to figure out what do we do legally, which we're, we're still working on. But, you know, when someone lives in Pennsylvania and someone lives in Australia or someone lives in the UK, it's like, what do you do, right? And there's a whole new thing now with internet stuff that there, 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 there's ways to do this now. But back then there was like, there was like the wild west of you can just falsely, falsely accuse anybody. And, and as all this is coming out, I'm, I'm dealing internally with my grandfather stuff. So it was crushing. And so you talk about like, what was my lowest point? Like that was it. Like to, to, to be accused of stuff that had, you had been done to you by your own grandfather 
by people you had never met. And then to have the people that you'd spent the last two years with not come out and support you, not come up and say, Hey, you know, we are at these conventions with these guys. Um, I had one guy who came out and, and he did, he, he supported me in a roundabout way. I, I appreciate his name's Mark Pellegrino and I appreciate what he did. Cause he took a lot of arrows, but he just said, Hey, how about due process? Why don't any of you go to the police? Why don't any of you press charges? Why don't any of you stop persecuting this guy on social media and go to the law? No, nobody went, nobody went to the police. There was nothing filed against me anywhere. I, in fact, actually went to the police and the police like laughed at me. They were like, oh, so you're an actor with fans that that harass you. I'm like, no, it's a little bigger than that. They're like, okay, we'll put it in the file with, you know, the, the drive bys and, the, and the, <laughs> exactly. you know, the, the murder what, suicide, what, the DA. How about that actor that just got persecuted online? Uh, it was, it was really a, it was really a dark, dark time. Cause I had, I had built so much around helping these people. I had a 501c3, which we were raising money to get people, especially the disabled, to the conventions that couldn't afford it because these actors were charging like $500 for an autograph and a photograph. Yeah, they were making hundreds of thousand dollars in appearance. They were the, the highest paid actors um, uh, per capita for what they did. They were making more than Robert Downey Jr. And these are just a couple guys on a TV show that they were on for 15 years. Like, they were walking away with fistfuls of dollar, like bags of cash. And I'm like, this seems a little ridiculous to make 200 grand for a day for your autograph and photograph. That seems highly, something's off. And then I came up with this wonderful idea to like, let's go approach sponsors. Let's let's go to Coca-Cola and T-Mobile and AT&T and Gatorade and Nike. And let's, let's have them pay your extraordinary amounts of money to sign, sign your autograph and photograph and don't charge the fans like charge the fans 50 bucks 50 bucks to get in you get everybody gets the same amount because it's uncomfortable when you're sitting next to so-and-so and your autograph and photographs 150 bucks and theirs is 25 that's just it's a horrible feeling for them i mean why and this person has done far more than you uh, there was one actress on the show who was a friend of mine at the time and she had done like 20 episodes i'd done four and i was priced three times higher than her and she was like a staple on the show. I'm like, how sexist is that? Like, and I went to the, the organizers at, um, that do the conventions. I said, this is horribly sexist. You're flying as a certain class. You're treating us a certain way. You're paying us a certain amount. And you're treating these women lesser than. And they didn't like that. And then I just, I, I just realized like, I wasn't in a position to kind of be the one making these calls on something that they'd been, you know, they, they had been running this for a while. I was kind of like the odd man out. Which once again brings me to, you know, the president, like kind of being the odd man out coming into coming into the swamp and saying he's going to drain it. <laughs> it, it ain't going to like you. Right. You're not you're going to piss off a lot of people. I essentially did that. And looking back, I could have probably gone about it a different way, but I certainly didn't deserve these crazy accusations. And we found out that the racket they were running, that they were kind of put up to run to, to remove me was they would create a GoFundMe account and they would come out with their story and they would go from like, you know, seven, eight, nine, fifty followers to like a thousand. Cause people would go, Oh my God, she's come out with her story. And they would, you know, one girl went from like sixty followers to a thousand. And then when she hit a certain mark, they would then say, I'm starting a GoFundMe page to get an attorney to go after him. And then they would raise like two or three thousand dollars through GoFundMe to get an attorney. And then they would take that money and go to a convention.
No attorney was ever retained. No one ever came after me. It's crazy. And all this racket, all this is happening underneath here. I mean, Hollywood's going on up here, right? And then here's my little tiny minuscule career down here. And it was just getting torched. And then I had this thing with this, you know, guy up here who was bringing me up and, and mentoring me and, and making me realize that my entire abuse as a child and everything. And then telling me, no, that's okay. You weren't really abused. Like this is what your grandfather was supposed to do to you. And this is kind of known within our industry that this has happened to so many people, Travis. And, and he just started naming names of all these huge people that, that, that this had happened to them and that they, that it's just accepted. And I just went, no way. That was my darkest time. And that, that led me down a very dark path because I got offered a deal and I didn't take it. And, and I had to sleep with that every day because I started to realize, oh my God, everybody I know who, everybody at least I know that personally that had made it kind of took the deal. So I'm not going to take this deal. I'm done. What do I do? Who, who, what am I going to do with my life? And I just kind of spiraled. I hit, I hit it hard. I hit, I hit the drinking. I hit the, I hit the self-isolation. I, um, I lost my home. I lost my dogs. I kept my little dog Philly with me the entire time. I lost my car. I, was, I had to borrow my mom's car. I was living out of her car. I was living on the graces of other friends' couches and homes. Like people would go away to do big jobs, and they would let me um, stay at their home and take care of it. And then I just, I, you know, I was just in, in an absolute utter spiral for for two years. I had nothing. I had generally nothing. No money. I ran out of money. Um, yeah, I I was, you know, down and out in Beverly Hills, you know, which once again, like here I am with nothing but staying in the home of this A-list director shooting a film in Vancouver in his $10 million home, $4 million home overlooking the city, you know, having a martini by the pool. <laughs> like Poor shit. <laughs> poor, poor as fuck. Destroyed. <laughs> but like... It could get worse, you know, but yeah, but it was homeless like, is terrible. Yeah, like, <laughs> it, it was down and out in Beverly Hills. It was like I, you know, I don't don't cry for me, Argentina, but in but internally, I was I was I was gone. And one of the joys I had was talking with fans and messaging fans and helping fans with you know certain things. And I really enjoyed doing all of that. And I had a lot of wonderful people I met along the way. My my partner now in business and my, uh, she was like kind of my assistant when things were really amazing. And now she's like my business partner. She, I met her at a convention. She, she really wasn't into the show, but a friend dragged her to it. And, and she said, Hey, your website sucks. I could redo it for you. I said, great. She did it. She did a bang up job. And now we have three businesses together in a 501 C three. So not everything bad came from that. She's one of the big, bright shining lights. And, Boy, she she went through the fire too. They went after her. They attacked her, and they threw her under the bus. And and you know, this is a mother of three young girls and a military wife, thirty year veteran. Her husband is just incredible. And you know, her name's Vicky Bartle, and she she was a saving grace. She kept me alive. My my dog kept me alive. My family kept me alive. They kept saying, "Come move home, move home." And I was like, I, "I'm forty years old. I cannot move home." I eventually had to move home. And my family would watch Fox News every night, and that was horrible for me. Like literally, like I'd have to come home, and I'd go into my room, and I'd watch CNN, and I'd come out, and they'd be watching like Tucker Carlson, and I'd be like, "Oh Jesus, I don't want this." And then I went back and forth, and had to listen to CNN, and and then that was another thing that broke me free of my chains. Like to go see these two huge, like 
left wing, right wing media and, and have to listen to one and then have a favorite in the other. And I would kind of like listen to my CNN and then I would turn the corner and I'd put my head in and be like, what did they just say on Fox? And it was like, like you said, this is not the news. This is not the news. This is it's highly opinionated falsities from both sides. And that just shattered my world. That was another low low because now I, everything I believed in in the media and all that stuff started to fall apart. And I no longer could trust CNN. Um, and then I got highly into Fox and I was on that you know pill for a while. And then I was like, wait a minute, got to get off that train. And, you know, that's recently been revealed as well. Like, what, they're, they're all the same. Yeah, they both got crazy town. <laughs> they're both <laughs> they're on parallel they're tracks. They're both the same. You know, they're, they're one and the same. And, and then, uh, you know, I met the love of my life. I met Alexis. I met her on a beach. Um, a buddy of mine said, hey, come down. And I said, I don't want to go to the beach. And I said, I should visit him. And I went down there and we got tanked and we, we, were, we were jacked up and... I was there with my little dog and my little dog ran over to Alexis and, and we started talking and I just went, oh, I am far too screwed up for you, you sweet thing, you sweet, nice, go away, <laughs> like, get, get away from me, you know? And I just, you know, we started talking and, and I just kind of laid it all on the line. I said, Let, let's just be very clear. You're going to Google me um, because that's what people do. They hear someone's name and they Google them. And you're going to see that I'm a sexual stalker of fans. Um, you're going to you're going to read some pretty pretty radical things about me. Uh, believe it, believe it. Or, yeah, I, I'm not going to sit there and say it's not all true. Like I just read it and tell me if it sounds realistic. Um, I, I learned that when you're guilty, you don't really have to. When you're not guilty, you really don't have to defend yourself. You just say read read it. If if you think that I did these things and run away. And then she, you know, she goes, oh my God, like, this is, this is crazy. Like how, how could you do any of these things these people said? And she saw, she saw it right away. And, um, I also said, by the way, I'm also homeless. You know, the house that we're going to hang out at is not mine. The car I'm driving in is my, my mom's, you know, little white Hyundai. Um, I, I'm not quite sure you want to go down this road with me. And she just, she stuck with me. And then, uh, we, we long distance dated for about a year. I went back and forth to Michigan and started getting on my feet. Um, lived at home, started, started finding ways to make money. Uh, last full measure, um, started to happen for real. And, uh, all that time, like nobody knew what was going on with me. I left Hollywood in 2017. Um, nobody really picked up the phone and said, Hey, what happened? Everybody kind of distanced themselves from me. Some of my closest friends were like, I know, I know you didn't do any of this, but dude, it's just kind of bad to be, be associated with you. I'm like, okay, you know, I get it. Just remember where, what you were doing when I was serving this country, you know, you were building your acting career while I was serving. And, and I see now like, you know, self over service. And, uh, I started gravitating more towards veterans and first responders cause I had disconnected from that community. I disconnected from the military community cause I was an actor. Right. And so then I started reconnecting with people who were service over self and, uh, got into saw and all this while we were making last full measure. And then, uh, two years ago I got a diagnosis that I had leukemia and, uh, and that, that was tough. That was tough because I, I do think it was brought on by I think my illness was brought on by, you know, Hollywood and, and everything. I, I think I made myself sick. Yeah. 
destroyed your immune system probably yeah, with stress. Hundred percent. And uh it you know, I I genuinely cannot believe like I there's not a day I don't wake up and go, How did I get out of that? And between Vicky, my family, Alexis and my pup, my Phil, like Man, if I didn't have those things, I I definitely would not be here. And my my saw community, my you know Maddie upstairs, and my brothers and sisters at Saw, uh, my dear friend Todd Robinson, who's now become you know I'm producing partners with him, and we're going to make this film together. And um, he helped me get to Saw. He was one who made the call and said, "I'll I'll I'll put you in the front of the line." And I was like, "Dude, I'm I'm not like this traumatic soldier that endured all this trauma in the Marine Corps." I, 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 my traumas from childhood and Hollywood. I don't want to go into through a room full of Navy SEALs and captains of firefighters and, and, you know, police chiefs and say, you know, I was molested in Hollywood, you know, <laughs> you know, like I, I didn't want to say that, but, uh, but I did. And these guys loved me and embraced me. And I, I told them my most inner secrets I had never revealed to anybody. And I got a bunch of big hugs and, and that program saved my life. And um, yeah, I, I, I couldn't recommend it more. And if it's not Save a Warrior, you know, f- find a program like it. You know, uh, we, it was indescribable how dark it was. And looking back, I can't believe how dark it was being that I never left Southern California. Like, that's crazy to me that it was that dark and look where we live. Like, how does it get that dark when you, when you live here? How? But mental, mental illness is, it's real. It's really, really, really real. And you could have all the money in the world and all the success in the world and be in the darkest place and, and nobody knows it. Nobody, nobody knows. The majority of people don't know the story I'm telling you. And I held, I held off telling it for a long time because I didn't want to, I didn't want those those witches, those trolls think that they destroyed me. You know, I put up this facade that they didn't get me, but they got me. They did a lot of damage. And the flip side to this story is when Kavanaugh was going through being a Supreme court justice, um, that was painful too. Cause you know, none of us know the truth behind anybody's sexual story. We don't know the truth behind hers or his, but all I knew is, I gravitated to the guy who I felt was getting falsely accused of something. I, I kind of connected to that. Um, and I, and I hope he was, and I hope, I hope, I hope that gal's story, uh, you know, I'd hate to have a Supreme court justice on the court that did the things she, she claimed he did to her that, that, that would be horrific. And so you, you just kind of have to look at that and is it believe all women or is it, you know, he definitely got the trial. And while he was going through that trial, there was a, a multiple tweet sent out by this young girl. Um, she was one of the first to come out and say that at a convention, at an autograph signing, that I had leaned over a table about as big as this one and reached up around her back, undid her bra, and felt her up. And that I had made forward advances to her on Snapchat. And she was 15. So there's another level of sexual assault. There's sexual assault on a woman and there's sexual assault on a child. And this 15 year old girl had decided to, to go on Twitter and tell everyone that I had somehow at an autograph signing felt her up, molested her 
and then was Snapchatting her all the sexual stuff. By the way, I don't have a Snapchat. You've never been to Australia. <laughs> in Australia. Interesting stuff, right? But uh -huh. none of it matters if you just say it. It's true. Yeah. So that was the, that was kind of the nail in the coffin with the minor accusation. And then there was like a, a YouTube thing that was out there with this whole scrolling of a conversation that we supposedly had, all photoshopped, all created, all done. She came out during the Kavanaugh trials, and now she's 18, right? It's three years later. My My life is my career my life is gone that life that i knew and she decides to say i made the whole thing up i travis I, he never touched me inappropriately you know my, my mom was with me at that convention she was sitting next to me at the, the autograph signing there's just there's just no possible way to do what she said i did and she said i made the whole thing up i was i was and it's like a seven tweet thing that she wrote i hope travis can forgive me i realize that this probably destroyed him um, what else did she say? She said, uh, I w you know, I was part of a group of girls that, that wanted him gone and I was told to do this and I felt like I'd found a group and I, you know, I'm an isolated kid who didn't have any friends and I just felt like I was, I was part of something and I'm just so, so sorry. I mean, basically admitted the whole thing. So we sent that tweet, my, my attorneys and, the, you know, the people that I still had left that represented me, we sent it to the Warner brothers and CW and, we didn't we didn't hear we didn't hear anything back not a word yeah not a word not like oh hey because he knew none of it was true to begin with but now we had the actual person saying i made this entire thing up as i'm watching something on tv that says believe all women women don't lie um and i'm like well here you go. Uh, I had a friend that worked uh, at a pretty big news network, and she uh, she's no longer with us. She passed. But I, I approached her. I said, can you cover this? Can you do this story? We're, we're doing this narrative that we're supposed to believe all women, and, and here's my story of me getting completely leveled by these accusations, and here's a young girl that said she made the whole thing up. Her She's admitting it. Like, interview her, interview me. Let's do a story that says that sometimes people lie. And my friend who I thought was my friend said, Travis, that would not be good for our narrative right now. Your story would not be good for our narrative. And if a couple white guys have to take some arrows for us women, then so be it. Maybe you should just fall on the sword. Really? Well, you think you already fall on the sword. It went through your bum hole and came out your mouth. Yeah, so. I, I was like, <laughs> fall through the sword. I, I fell through it. But she, she wouldn't cover the stuff. It was directly from someone who worked at a very big news organization. And, and that was a pretty low point saying, you know, the truth, the truth has been revealed, but it, it goes, it doesn't go against your, your, your narrative, uh, to, to not reveal the truth. Isn't your job to expose the truth? Aren't you a journalist? Like, aren't you a journalist? And, um, yeah, she, she decided that's what she's going to say to me. I didn't talk to her then. And then, uh, I got a call like about a year and a half later that she had passed away. And I said a prayer and uh, I said, you know, I, I, I said, you know, I'm, I wish you well and I, I hope you weren't in pain. And I just, you know, just, just, just know that I forgive you for, for not covering the story. I, I, I you know, I, it was, it, it was really painful for me when she passed away because we were such good friends. And then what she's, the last thing she said to me was so painful. And then to hear that she died was like, like once again, I, I I didn't celebrate in her 
loss. I knew that there was a lot of people that were hurting because of her loss. She was a, she was a big, important person for a lot of people, but you know, like these things with these people and you start to see what, what people say and do just to kind of be right and to kind of go with a narrative that seems wrong. And nobody knows the stories that I'm telling you. Like, you know, my, she knows it, my, my family knows it, but I've never publicly spoken about it. And if there's anything you can take from it, it's the lesson of, you don't know what anybody's going through. Like, stay back like stand back and just like maybe they're hurting you know like don't attack them maybe maybe there's maybe there's a reason why after two decades being a liberal i decided to support donald trump maybe it's not so black and white you know maybe there's something deeper that maybe it's not even about donald trump maybe it's about what i personally had went through and endured and i recognize that and some of the things that he's gone through uh, a lot of it brought on himself you know, that's, but at the same time, there's a lot of things that I, I, I relate to. And so I gravitate. And then obviously when I try to, you know, stand on the other side, I get attacked. I'm not going to stand there. So maybe we should stop attacking people for differences, opinions and do what you're doing and ask why, like, Hey, I, I don't really like this dude. I don't really want to support him. I don't know who, who would, will you explain to me why you do? <laughs> doesn't mean you're going to change your opinion, but surely you might go, I could understand why 71 million people voted for him rather than it just being 71 million racist people. It's not that easy. It's not, it's not that simple. It's not, you know, and what you're doing is exposing that it's not black. This conversation is not black and white. And, um, I wish more people were doing what you're doing. You know, I wish more people were listening and, and, uh, you know, I, I hope for, uh, I hope for, I hope for, you know, the best in the next coming months, you know, it's the unity thing I don't think is going to happen for quite some time, but we got a lot to fix. If there's one thing that's been revealed, it's, it's how broken and fractured we are. So coming from someone who's been broken and fractured, there's only one way up. So we got it. We got to piece it together somehow. Um, so that's where I've been, but you know, that was a very long witted answer to your, you know, what was your lowest point? It just wasn't like, oh, it was Sunday, March 6th when my, my dad passed away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, like, it was a culmination of all the things. It, it just... was like a void of three years. And like I said, nobody knew. They were just like, oh, you went from Supernatural to this movie and you made this big blockbuster film with all these huge actors. And then you got engaged and you're living in South Laguna. Like, man, boy. You know, and that's why I start kind of going on social media and like posting like this fake life. Like I, I, I don't, I, so much of what we post is just not really what's going on. You know, you go through anybody's social media and you go, man, I want that. That looks fun. Why aren't we in the Maldives right now swimming? And, you know, you don't know if that's that person's last trip because, you know, they got diagnosed with something and they're spending their savings there. Like, you don't know why they went there. Like you don't know, but we're just looking at it going like, why do they get to go there? Why don't I? And that's where like the, the mark of the beast, you know, uh, uh, my sister said to me something really kind of profound. She goes, maybe, maybe this idea that the, you know, uh, God returning in, into our, our, our world is maybe it's not a man. Maybe it's not a woman. Maybe it's social media. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the devil. Mm-hmm. 
Oh God! And, and, it, can, and it can be used so well, but oh my God, is it abused? <laughs> but she said that to me. She goes, maybe, maybe the, maybe the, you know, the, the, the rapture is social media. It's already here, and like we are, we're all waiting for the clouds to open, like God to come on on horses, and, and he just takes whoever's got the most light. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, very true. All right. Well, you mentioned last full measure. So, you know, obviously that's something that brought us together. Uh, Justin Wood and Matty Forenza, you know, connected me with you. Well, actually, Justin did. And then Matty didn't realize that we were doing this. So it's kind of cool. Um, so tell me about that project, the story behind it. And then, you know, I love the, the element that you described about some of the actors feeling like that was their way of giving back. Yeah. It was, um, you know, we spoke a little bit about the things that kind of pulled me out of the darkness and saved my life. That project and and Todd Robinson was was were one of those things, a big thing because I I held tight to that project for several reasons. One, I read a script that, um, you know, we read a lot of scripts in Hollywood. You know, we 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 get a handful of my, I want to say, throwing a rough rough number out there. And in, in two decades, I've probably read well over, you know, three to three to 4,000 scripts easily TV film. Um, Todd's script of the last full measure when it was handed to me, uh, was one of the, if not the best scripts I've ever read. There's so much like a book, uh, detailed in that original script that is not in the final film because of all the reasons when you're making a movie that things come and go. And, and watching those things come and go as we're making the movie, I thought there's no way this movie is going to be good. We've lost too much. We lost that scene. We lost that scene. We lost that character. We lost that actor. How is this going to be good? We lost that location. So many things with that project fell apart at different times. When I came on, um, I was going through the things that we discussed before and, uh, you know, I was not revealing any of this stuff to the producers or the director other than, Hey, you know, there's some false allegations about, you know, they're, you're going to hear from these people, which is what they did. They called him directly. They found his number. They called him directly. They called the producers. They were like, how could you hire this? I mean, they, they, they went after me and he just said like, like my gal and like so many other people, we've read what you've written. <laughs> it just doesn't add up. You know, sorry, I'm not, I'm not into the whole, like, just believe you to believe you. Like you gotta have some concrete proof here, something. And so he stuck by my side, which was big of him because I, I wasn't a big enough name or any type of celebrity to, to, to look past that. Right. Something like that can just get you removed from a project. There's plen plenty of people to, to replace you. Um, looking back now, I, I wasn't as easily replaceable knowing knowing what I ended up doing for the project because when I was approached from from uh, the producer of the film, Sidney Sherman, uh, I, I was simply approached as an actor. Like, we're doing this film. There's a lot of roles. I think it'd be great. We're assembling some pretty powerful actors. Um, at that time, we had, like, Al Pacino and Mel Gibson and Christopher Plummer, Clint Eastwood. These were the people that were attached, that, that were looking at it and, and negotiations to be a part of it. So those are some pretty huge names. And um, 
funny enough, none of them are in it. <laughs> so you <laughs> can imagine other, like, other big names. you know, it's, it's who we landed with. It, it was incredible based upon each and every one of those people I just named fell out at different times. And any one of those actors fall out at any time in any other production, you lose your movie. It's like, it's a sheer miracle that this movie got made, but Todd had written it 20 years ago. And when they approached me as an actor, I'd met Todd at a hotel in Santa Monica and, and talked about the script. And we talked about the, um, the story I, I had vaguely heard about William H. Pitzenberger because in the military, you know, we have a ton of classes where we study about all sorts of different um, military personnel who did incredible acts of uh, service and uh, sacrifice. And I, I remember vaguely, I like you know, the Air Force guy. I, I didn't really know much about PJs, para jump, para jump, uh, para jumpers, and you know, I, I knew all the Marine Corps. Uh, stories, you know, I knew Chesty Puller and a lot of the guys, uh, Dakota Meyer, guys that had won the Medal of Honor. I knew enough of the Medal of Honor stories to know how important the Medal of Honor is. And, and also something about the Medal of Honor is if you are awarded the Medal of Honor, um, if you're a recipient of one, that the, the president salutes you, right? And generals salute you. Like it, it gives you this level of uh, respect that, that, you know, you could be a PFC and run into a burning building and save a bunch of lives and, and get a medal of honor. And you've just been promoted in a big way as far as respect and rank. And so the medal of honor is just, uh, it's very special. So I knew it was a story of about the medal of honor. I also knew that we were going through an interesting time in our movie industry where these films were not being made. So crazily enough, this film that should be a $150 million Saving Private Ryan type film, we had, you know, 25 million bucks to, to play with, which, you know, in any independent world, that'd be plenty, but not in a, in a Vietnam political war film. But they had managed to wrangle the cash and they, they had a budget and a crew and they had all the people in order to make it. So I came on board as an actor and I was excited and I was just, you know, wondering what, what what, what I was going to do in it. And, and I was given a role, you know, based upon my meeting with Todd, he gave me a, the, the role that I ended up playing in the film, which is a, a much bigger role on paper. But as you get shooting, like the roles that really matter end up being like the top four guys, <laughs> like everybody else is kind of like, you're supporting them. So whatever you read on the script, it's, you're always cautious about saying I'm in this film and I'm one of the leads. Like, <laughs> No, uh, William Hurt is one of the leads on the cutting room. One floor. of the leads, you know, <laughs> and we, you know, some of the big actors, uh, Michael Imperioli was incredible. Like he played Sebastian Stan's character's, uh, best friend, kind of like his, his, the guy he bounced ideas off of an incredible storyline. A lot of the auditioning was done off of that dialogue. And when we were trying to find Sebastian's character for the part before we had offered it to Sebastian, we, we used a lot of the material from this, from Michael Imperioli's character. And Michael Imperioli is like, you know, Goodfellas and, and uh, Sopranos. Like he's an incredible, talented actor. He came in and auditioned, which I couldn't believe. Like he auditioned, like we were going to offer it to him. And the, his whole entire role got cut. The whole thing. We filmed it all too. And it ended up on the cutting room floor. You barely see him at the very end, like stand up. You see the back of his head. And, and Michael was incredible about it. He was such a gentleman. It's like, hey man, I'm here to support the story. You know, his ego was removed. I, I gave him a lot of credit because you put that kind of, time, energy, and effort into a, a role and it ends up on the cutting room floor, you're like, why did I do it? 
well, you know, that was a waste of time. And, you know, and, and Michael really knew that this story was about William H. Pitsenbarger and the, and the men that served and, and the Vietnam War. So I, there's tons of stories like that throughout this. So I'm, 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 you know, I could talk to you for hours about this because it, it is, it was a four year process. So, so Todd had been trying to make it since 1999, you know, and it had gone everywhere. It bounced all around Hollywood. It was bought here, held the studio sold, this got, I mean, all that stuff. It's it got to be frustrating as the for creator, but Todd had made a, a promise to these guys, um, that are in the film. He made a promise to them that he would get this movie made. And, and to his credit, he, he saw through, you know, everyone involved came on board for the right reasons and, um, everybody stuck it out. Everybody, everybody made it through and nobody did it for money. Nobody was paid anywhere near what they should have been paid for whatever their usual quote is. That's how we were able to make it. It was all based upon, uh, William's courage, his story, his family's story, the, the courage of these men that fought so hard to get him the medal of honor, which took them, <clears throat> you know, God, it's 30 years to get him the medal. And then it took another 20 years to make the movie. So, you know, you're talking about a 50 year span of these guys, you know, at a very young ages that are now in their late seventies who fought so hard for this man's story to be told. So their, their story, the mud soldiers, uh, big red one, the pair, the pararescue guys, they were the ones that kind of inspired us all. And then William's story is, is what he did his, his act of heroism, uh, something that he didn't have to do, you know, he could have very easily just stayed up in the helicopter and, you know, done, you know, just help people as they came up. But he, he went down and, and he saved lives and the effects that, that, that one act of service did and how many lives it affected and, and how many lives were changed and how many people went on to have families of their own and live the American dream. And it was all based upon this one simple act of service and service over self was, was, something that just really hit home like as I was going through this really traumatic point in my life it helped me not be a victim it helped me go you know what um, I can sit here and say woe is me you know all this is falling apart and you know his story helped lift me up and, and helped me not stay in the victim role it helped me pull myself out of you know being a victim myself and just being like this guy wasn't a victim none of the guys around him are victims none of them are victims from the Vietnam War they all take responsibility for, you know, everything. And I just met some incredible people along the way. I'm, you know, Phil Hall and Ken Alderson and, um, uh, John Pagini, you know, oh God, there's Scott Guerin, all these real life guys that served, uh, our country and, and were there and fought. They're actually in the movie. They, they've got a little cameo. That's at the end when, they're the end when they all stand up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's them. That's them, you know. 20 years later reenacting what they actually did 20 years ago. So it's funny watching it because 20 years ago when the award, when the medal was given, they were 20 years younger. So they were much younger when, when the, the, the award was given, but no one seemed to notice that little trick, right? No one goes, those guys are really kind of old for this being 1999, but we wanted to put the real, the real veterans in the film to, to Todd's credit. And, and something I was really adamant about um, was like, you know, Hollywood is not making these movies with the real people. Like they don't have to be the stars, but you got to have them on set. You got to have them there, right? They're the ones that advising, you know, and you can't have too many advisors, but, but it's just good to have the real deal there and to, to help the other actors. And so 
So we, we, we get into this uh, place where Todd goes, hey, I really want you to um, get into the casting room and help us find the actors to play these parts. So then I went into casting, and I went into casting like I had never gone into casting before, which is not only uh, you reading with these actors, but staying in the room and being part of the decision-making process, which essentially is producing, right? If you're just reading with the actors, then the producers and the directors talk. You just, you're just the reader, and I've done that plenty of times. But to actually be part of the conversation and making choices, I got to actually choose some of the guys that, along with the casting and the director. The director called me up and said, all right, these are the choices. What do you think? And he would look at me and I'd be like, oh my God, like I'm going to, I'm going to change somebody's life. <laughs> like <laughs> no pressure, like this guy or that guy. And I got to choose a couple of the guys in the film. Um, and then also I got to hear some interesting stories as to why we chose certain people, which also was, was interesting, like, uh, to learn the business side of it as well. Some of it wasn't all about their acting. It was about, you know, who they were and the likes and the clicks and their celebrity or, you know, their social media following, whatever. Um, they all turned out to be incredibly talented. And they all fit perfectly in the film. But but to, to go through like hundreds of actors and audition them and be like, that was incredible. Yeah, but nobody knows who that guy is. <laughs> like, oh my God, but we, we, do, we, do we need a star? Like we have all these other famous people maybe give this gotcha. chance. And I just found myself fighting for, you know, a version of me at that age, like, you know, and it that didn't work. Uh, they cast who they cast and it was all for the right reasons and you learn how that system works and we started to assemble this incredible group of guys you know Jimmy Jagger Cody Walker um, God Jeremy Irvine Sedarius Blaine like these are talented talented kids like they got the craft down and they also got the business down and they're doing their thing and they're young and they're all playing younger versions of these huge movie stars and then we we, we had Scott Eastwood attached for a little bit him and his dad we're going we're gonna to be at Clinton's Scott Eastwood. And Clint was going to play Christopher Plummer's part. And for whatever reason, you know, Clint didn't work out. Scott, Scott didn't work out. And so we got Sebastian Stan. And, and this is all just interesting stuff, like watching how it works, how a movie comes together. We had Pacino for a little bit. And Pacino was doing script notes with Todd. And they were working on it. And something came up for, for Pacino. And, you know, Pacino was out. And Mel Gibson was in. And Mel Gibson was going to do it. And Mel Gibson was out. And it was just like, it was just so fun. It was so interesting to go, oh man, I really wanted to work with Al Pacino. God, I was really want to work with Mel Gibson. Oh, okay. Peter Fonda? That's that's pretty cool. Oh, oh okay. Ed, Ed, Ed's going to do it. William Hurt's going to do this? Like, these are guys that like, I grew up watching that are just so strong in their presence in their and and i just knew their work at such a level as an artist and like as an actor and all this stuff that i just knew them and i was just so excited to meet them and i obviously had in my mind these guys that i'd watch growing up and these parts and then you meet them and they're not the same age nor are they the same person that you remember them as and they're also playing a part that's very near and dear to a time in their life that they, they live through and that they're still living through. And that was interesting, right? Like when you watch Saving Private Ryan, Tom, Tom Hanks wasn't around during World War II. He, he didn't have the option to go fight in Normandy. He's, he's playing a guy that, that, that's you know, 20, 30 years older than him now. For these guys to play parts that fit them exactly where they are, 
to, to be on a set full of veterans who fought in a war that they, for whatever reason, each one of them did not fight in the, that was such an interesting psychology thing going on with, okay, I need to be around you guys. I need to study. I need to hear your stories, but also like, yeah, this, this war is not a, a good spot for this very famous successful actor, you know, um, being around a guy, a bunch of guys that were broken, very much broken from, from the Vietnam war to, to these huge movie stars that have been, you know, given everything that the, the world can give you. It was interesting to kind of, you know, look at the two, you know, you're playing him and this is a guy who really did it. And this is where he's at in his life. This is where you are at in your life. Boy, what a, Di- what different trajectories they get on. And then, like I said earlier, like, you know, when I was going through my, my hardest, my most lowest point and, and I was getting accused of atrocious things, I just wanted the guys that had benefited from my time in the Marine Corps, my, while I decided to serve. I just wanted those, those guys to stand up for me and, 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 you know, give a little service to, to a person who's wrongfully accused. I wanted them to stand up and say, Hey, we know this guy, this is not what he did. And, um, that was their time to kind of help out a vet. And, and they decided that they, you know, it, it, w- it was advised that they, that they didn't, you know, because it was a little hot subject at the time, you know, and very cowardly and, uh, no problem saying that, no problem saying it to them, no problem saying it on, you know, to you. And it, it pisses off a lot of people because it exposes them truthfully, you know, um, they should have done the right thing. And, and so now I'm on a big movie set where, where the stakes are even higher. This isn't about, you know, my personal thing. This is about a generational thing and a, and a war that you're seeing these huge movie stars with these real life veterans digging in and like getting to the, the bottom of what that war was. And what it did to them because they're not playing them younger. We were the ones playing them younger. So then our, my conversation with these veterans was a little different. That was me talking, you know, me and Jimmy and Cody and Jeremy, you know, uh, we're all talking to them. Like, what do you remember? What was it like for you at 18 to, to experience this? And what was it like? Cause we were portraying them at that age. Their conversations was like, what's it like being you now? <laughs> like that's a big difference. Yeah. That's a big difference. And, and William Hurts was awesome, man. Me, me and William. So one day Todd says to me, you know what? Uh, you know, I've got a big scene. Uh, you know, William wants to work with, uh, cause William, William, William was all in William. William's a guy who's all in. He's, he's into the craft. He's there. He wants to be present. He, you know, he's, he's, he's a sponge and there he is and he's on set. And, uh, you know, Todd's got to focus on, on the scene. So he was like, why don't you and William go with a couple of the veterans, a couple of the guys, um, Ken Alderson and, and, uh, and Phil, Phil Hall, why don't you guys go and just grab some drinks at the hotel, go to the bar and, uh, kind of break it down. Great. You know, I get to go to the bar with William. Hey, William, you know, yeah, what's up, Travis? Let's go grab a couple of drinks and like break, break these guys down. Let's like, let's, let's talk to them about, you know, their stuff. And I just was thinking like, for me, like, let's talk to them because I wanted to kind of understand my, my character and like what they experienced in Vietnam. William had a whole different approach. Like he had to understand them now. Um, cut to me and William, and and also you know at this time in my life I'm I'm struggling to, to stay sober. I want to stay sober, right? I don't want to want to be drinking because of what I was going through. 
and William is, is, you know, uh, I, I believe he's X amount of years sober. Like he's a pretty sober guy himself. Like I, I don't know his history with alcohol, but I just know he prefers not to drink, but we all started drinking, you know, and scotch and cut to William and I screaming at each other over craft and what we are allowed to say and how he does his craft and my craft. And we're, we're having a big, huge argument uh, in, in the middle of a hotel bar while these two veterans who served in the Vietnam War are just watching us fight. Like, you know, slamming of the fists, explicities yelled. And I, in the back of my mind, I'm like, I am cursing at William Hurt. And William Hurt is cursing back at me. Like, that's what I'm thinking about. I am going to get fired from this job. Like I am, I am nobody to be screaming at William Hurt, but I was just so angry and he was so mad. Like two sides just, bah! and we start yelling and, and, and the two veterans Phil and kind of like, stand down, stand down. And finally I just go, you know what? I, I this and that William. And, and I spoke my, I said what I wanted to say. And William said what he wanted to say. And we both start crying. We literally both start breaking down crying. Now there's two actors in the hotel bar, sobbing hugging each other and these two vietnam guys who fought in this battle are like these fucking actors <laughs> it was one of the great and i went back to the the house we were staying at with the director and the the producers and i just went and said hey guys i you may have to fire me i you know if if if, if uh if william hurt calls you and says you know who the f does this guy think he is um I want him off the set. I, I get it. You probably have to let me go. And uh, they were just like shocked. They're like, what? What did? What happened? And I told them. Um, to my to to my surprise, and also to to, to a compliment to who William Hurt is, I I got a, an email in the middle of the night from him, just saying, and I kept it to this day. It's just saying some of the most endearing empathy. Empathy. You know, we talk a lot about empathy. Just just an incredible amount of responsibility and empathy and, and, and a kind letter, an email to me just saying how, how grateful and how thankful he is for that and what, what, what I helped him with and how he needed that for tomorrow's scene. And I'm like, okay, great. I still got a job. <laughs> I, I thought I was gone. And that turns out to be the scene, the wall with Sebastian, which is extremely powerful. He thanked me for helping him with that. Like somehow, some way, all that, that, that crazy actor, artsy argument, screaming, gave him the ability to take that, what happened with him and I and, and him and, and Sebastian were able to go do the dance on the day. And, and like those little things, like up until now, I, you know, Todd knows the story. Sydney knows the story. A few people know the story. Cause it's like, Oh my God, I got in this huge fight with William Hurt and I stood my ground, you know, cause most people would be like, I don't want to, you know, I was proud of myself for standing my ground, but I was also very proud of him for, for what he did and what he said and how it helped him. And then you just step back and you go, wow, that, that I played a part in that scene, even though I'm not in it. <laughs> Yeah, you know? you're part of the process. You're part of the process, right? We we all are somewhat part of the process, and 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 that was a really big moment to go. Oh, okay, I'm I'm in. Like, so I was in Atlanta for three weeks on that, and then I was in Thailand for ten days shooting all my stuff, 
And then I became the military, uh, co-military advisor. We, we had brought Dale Dye on. I brought Dale Dye on. I had Dale on the show. I worked did with him. Did you? Yeah, I did um, yeah. a show I in Dale. Japan, stunt show, and he put us through like a mini boot camp. They brought him in. Julia was our director. Huge amount of respect for that man and his service and his life and what he's contributed. And, and what he's contributed to the, the film world is, I mean, he's made war movies. He's, he's set the standard for how war films should be done. And so I was working with Dale at the time. And, and I remember talking to, to, to Todd during the casting. And I go, you know, Senator Holt, did you write it for Dale Dye? He goes, oh, no, did Dale Dye? Like, we couldn't get Dale. Dale's like huge. Like, I'm like, we got we got Ed Harris and William Hurt. And he goes, yeah, but, but you know, we're not a big enough military film to get Dale. Like, I can, do fa- I can ask favors of William and Ed because they're friends. But like, I don't know Dale, like I, I, we can't pay him what, what he costs to do a military film. And I said, well, let me call him. He goes, you know, Dale, I go, yeah, I'm working with him right now on a project. And it was one of those moments where we're in a casting office. I called Dale. I'm like, Dale, he's like, yeah, Travis, now what's going on? You know? Well, uh, I'm here with Todd Robinson. Oh, that's great. What you, last one measure. Oh, it sounds great. I think you'd be great. Well, put, put, put Todd on, put Todd on. Hey Dale, how are you? Oh, I'm great. Would you read it? Yeah, I'll take a read. Uh, well, you know, read it, but just know that if you like it, the role's yours. Well, okay, let me read it. I, I, I think it sounds great and I'll read it and called back and I'm in. Like I'd never in my life have I ever experienced like, like you said, keep it simple. No agents, no managers, no arguments, no negotiations. Just you like it, you want it, boom. We had Dale and his Senator Holt and Todd's like, you, you just cast Senator Holt, you cast Dale Dye. So I, I cast that role. And now I'm like, well, I'm really part of this. I'm not just an actor in this film. Like, like I'm in, like, this is it. And at this time I had no producing credit. Like I was just helping out the project for what it was. I just knew I, I just knew I had to help to get this story told. I just, there was something that said, you have to, you have to, you made a promise to these guys. Todd made a promise. Let's get it made. So we got Dale on board. Now, now I'm in Atlanta with Dale. Uh, Dale had, you know, a, bunch of stuff that came up and so we couldn't do the whole like second unit guy actor military advisor so now i'm in thailand military advising which i had never done ever and by the way i'm a marine that served from 94 to 97 i know nothing about the marines in vietnam how you know how they act how they spoke i mean he's a professional at all that so i had to run our entire young actors through a boot camp like mock this boot camp and now i'm one of the military advisors on the on the movie and I'm like, just because I went to the Marines doesn't mean I know what you need to teach for the movies. Like, but we had another guy that was helping out as well. And, uh, we did all that. And then, then next, thing you know, I'm like co-producing this project. And if for anybody who wants to like be involved in movie making, you know, when you're, when you're starting something new, like producing or acting, you, you have to make choices. You have to decide, you know, you got to cut your teeth. You got to say, you know, I'll do all this work and there's no contract. There's no money. There's, there's no glory. You, you got it. You got to do the work and you got to do it for the right reasons. And, and so that's what I, I did with, um, this project. I just said, I'm all in. And I ended up, you know, talking to the producer of the film and saying, you know, here's a list of things I'd done. I know I didn't negotiate this. I'm not asking for any money, but I'd really love to get into producing. I'm pulling away from acting and I'd love to be a producer on it, you know, in some capacity. And they gave me the, the sole co-producer credit. And, um, that's how I was involved with that film. And through the process of that, I got to genuinely witness, um, some of the greatest performances I've ever seen, uh, up front in front of my face, not on screen and then see them in, in person and then on screen. 
And I've never been more proud of a project to hang my hat on. I've I never have thought I'd ever make anything where genuinely like it doesn't matter if we get awards. It doesn't matter if it even gets recognition. Like we got the movie out there. We were thanked by every veteran. We got a standing ovation in Dayton, Ohio at the, at the U S air force museum and every one of the veterans, including William Pitsenbarger's mom who recently passed, she gave us a challenge coin and thanking us for telling her son's story. And I have never been part of a project where veterans have thanked people in Hollywood for getting it right. That's rare. That's really rare. And, and that kind of set this, the bar. Like we, we have a responsibility to make these films and tell them as honestly as possible. And what we're witnessing over the last few decades is we've, we've told some of these, these stories incorrectly and we've done it for you the wrong reasons. John Rambo wasn't based on a true story. <laughs> <laughs> Love Rambo, by the way. But yeah, you know, I don't know. I, I, you know, maybe there was a lone guy who Brian Dennehy, you know, get, get, had an itch to, 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 to talk about, talk about bad cop story that's John Dennehy was not a good cop in that he was a bad dude like the guy was just trying to go for a walk man <laughs> you, know, just, you push me just he really you know John, oh god that movie is not a good not a good look for police officers at all <laughs> or military or military no yeah because if you push us we're we're you know we're gonna you know slaughter an entire, slaughter village. An entire village with one round yeah <laughs> one <laughs> magazine with, with just a knife and a and, and some sticks. Um, but yeah, it, we, we promised those guys we'd get it right. Every one of them has thanked us. They've all said we got it right. The mom said we got it right. I believe we got it right. Sam Jackson, William Hurt, Ed Harris, Peter Fonda. I got to, I got to know Peter a little bit. Um, him and I spent some time and it turned out to be his last movie. And that was a special thing to, to spend that time with him and to, to hear his side of the story of how things kind of laid out with him and, the guilt and uh, shame that, that he had endured all these years for the Vietnam war and, you know, things with his family and their stance on the Vietnam war and the veterans and man, that was tough. You know, the veterans were not happy about Peter at first, but boy, have they all, have they all, have they all buried that hatchet. They've all thanked him profusely and they all got to say, you know, thank you for the performance you gave and, and uh, thank you for portraying it correctly and getting it right. And then, then Peter passed away not too long ago. And I, I got to spend some special time with him, and um, I'll cherish it forever. He taught me. He taught me more in a few hours than most people in the industry taught me over two decades. Like he, boy, talk about a guy who who held it all in. He held it all in, and I think he he let it out when when they paid him to to do it for for performances. But you know, he he was he was on the surface, man. He he was such an open book. And we sat in his trailer and talked. I, I told him some similar stories that I told you today. And he had so much empathy and love. And, and I, I actually told him some names because I, you know, I, I really needed some clarity. You know, like, hey, Peter, did, did you know, was it your grandpa's responsibility to <laughs> to molest you? Like, is this kind of like... like yeah, he didn't know. Yeah, Trev, I'm glad you know. That's Great. what on Golden Palm was about. No, he, 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 he... <laughs> he looked at me and he just said, no, that that's not normal, man. That's not normal. And, and I, I know the stories you're talking about and it's, it, yeah, it's, it's real. And that's what a lot of people think enough powerful people think it to be concerned and you should be. And, um, but yeah, man, it's not normal. You, you know, you don't, you don't, don't think for a second that that's the, 
the ring you have to kiss to make it in this industry. It's not like you don't have to do that, but you can, if you want, but, but he, he helped me through a really challenging time, like to, to figure that out and to hear it come from him and not know that the whole thing was rotted from the, the, the core up was, was helpful because it's hard. It's hard when you've dedicated your life to something for 20 years and you think, wait, am I part of this? Like, am I, am I, am I part of this? And, um, you can be, but I learned a lot from him. Ed Harris is, <laughs> Ed Harris is just, there's a scene with Harris and, Ed Harris and Sebastian and, and, and Sebastian walked over to the director after the first take and go, is he going to punch me? <laughs> Ed could not be the nice, nice, he's the nicest human being on the planet. Such a good dude. But boy, when he's, when he's on, like when he's in his, whew, like that scene where he just kind of holds his hand up and like every single scene in that movie, other than the coaster, uh, the scene with the butterfly stuff that shot in Costa Rica. Um, I wasn't able to go, uh, to, to there during that period, but that was like a three day shoot and it was just the butterfly scene with John Savage. Another actor who John called me in the middle of the night, the other night, like he called me at midnight just to say hi and check on me. Such a good dude, just a good human being that that stuff with the butterfly and, and I'll have you do this interview with um, Todd Robinson. I'll put you in touch with Todd. He'll tell you about the butterfly scene. Him and him, Sebastian and John found that. And it's incredible. But but John is another one of those just incredible souls. And uh, so blessed. Like, you know, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and be like, babe, the guy from Deer Hunter is calling me. Like, it's crazy. Like, I'm still a human being. Like, we're all, we're all still human beings. But it's so, it's you know, these people just reveal who they are. You know, they're just, they're just human beings. They're not to be idolized. And these guys I mentioned don't want to be, they don't want to be, they just want to do their work. They want to tell story and they don't want to be idolized or looked upon as if like, you know, they're the guys that are actually doing the real work and they, none of them are fooling themselves. So at least these guys I'm speaking about, they all know the part they play and they all know what they contribute and we can't make these movies without them and we need them. We need them to be as vulnerable as they possibly can. And we need them to express what we're feeling that, that we don't share. Um, because if, if it was us on screen, we'd be a bloody mess. Like they'd say cut and we just keep going, you know, like these guys know how to turn it on and off. They've, you've got to respect their craft. And, um, I love them for that. And none of those guys have ego. They're, they're very special human beings. So yeah, you know, if I never make another movie again, I, I could hang my hat on this one and, and put it all behind me and, and go into a, another profession. But I think Todd and I are going to make a another film here pretty soon with an interesting cast. And, uh, and I'm so interested in telling this story. I think it's going to be such a great story to tell. It, it's really about unearned wealth and ego and greed. Um, Maximilian's gold and and, and the pursuit of it and everybody who touches it, what happens to their life. And it's not pretty. And like I said, there, there's a character on the page. That's the most evil character I've ever read. I, I don't know who we're going to get to play it, but it's, it's dark. It's dark, dark, dark. I mean, this guy's a bad dude. And, um, but I think a story needs to be told like that. We, we need to see what, what evil really is. We, we've put, we put this idea out there that certain people are evil and you know, they're all just trying to do a job. Real evil exists. And, and when you see, when you see it, you'll know it, you know, narcissism, 
egotistical, uh, wealthy, uh, power hungry, you know, yeah, it's all formula for, for, for turning bad, but, but it ain't, it ain't evil. Like there's evil out there in the world and we, we, we need to protect ourselves from it, you know? So that's the next film I'm telling with Todd and, uh, we're going to assemble a pretty, a pretty cool cast. And, um, yeah, last full measure was, uh, it was an incredible journey. Like I'm, I've seen it pop up on the queue a few times. I remember going around Hollywood and seeing the movie posters and just going, man, I was, I helped make that movie. You know, what, what was your, what was your experience with it? Like what I, I really love asking this question of people like, it feels to me that a lot of people who have seen it has worked something out when, when they, they didn't think they had to work it out. Like they've left the theater going like, I just, I didn't think I was, I didn't think I was going in to, to come out. I, I, there's a transformative thing that happens to people was that something similar for you when you, when you watched it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, you know, doing this, obviously there's, there's, there's a weekly multiple therapy session, you know, so, so, uh, you know, but it was just, yeah, an emotional journey. Like, you know, we, my wife and I watched it together. We both cried during the areas that I'm sure most people did. But yeah, I mean, there's so many elements, the, you know, the, the cost of war, you know, the impact on those men's lives, the, the true heroism, you know, not the, the facade of heroism that a lot of people put them on themselves, including my profession. You know, some of the nauseating selfies during the COVID thing, wearing the mask, um, you know, like the self-heroism, but the people that actually, you know, like he did, waved away his vehicle of safety it would have taken him away from the bullets and stayed there and then you know the 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 bureaucrat initially that was put on the case and how the human story ended up hooking him you know and he got invested and the the retribution the pride of the parents and the dad seeing it before he passed away you know i mean there were so many elements so many layers that but again you just you want to watch an Avengers movie, then, you know, and you're expecting a certain thing, but there's, you know, some of Clint's films and, you know, some of these other powerful ones that are made, you know, Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, you're going on a completely different journey and knowing that these are true stories and a story that wouldn't have been heard by a lot unless that film was made. Yeah, it was, it was very powerful and I can't recommend people, you know, listen or watch it enough. I mean, it was, it was incredible. Yeah, it's, it's, um, we've seen it over, I want to say I've seen it over 30 times at least. And normally with films, you go and you watch them a few times, you, you check the box and then, you know, you have to go see it or show up somewhere and watch it and you kind of sit down and sneak out the back. Um, every time they've shown it, I've, I've sat down to watch it. I've sat down to somebody where I can't get up and walk away because they're in it. And to kind of get up and walk, you feel the energy. Like if I get off, it's going to throw them off. Like why is, cause they don't know I've seen it 30 times. Right. So they're going to be like, why is he leaving? And it's going to pull them out. And I mean like people working through some stuff and, and some very powerful people, some, some high up military rank guys I've sat down next to and watched them as they kind of process this and go through it and break down. And I'm just sitting there going like, Oh, the butterfly scene again. Here we go. Can't get up. Can't walk out. 
And, you know, next thing you know, like the guy next to me or the gal next to me is in tears. And then, then you really can't leave. Right. So then you're there till the credits and then there. So, so this is the first film in my life that I had to watch every single time. And every time was a different experience because of who I was next to. So with that being said, um, we tend to, as veterans, uh, not want to necessarily watch films of things that we've already experienced, right? You don't go, oh, let's put on Platoon tonight and relive the Vietnam War because that's, you know, this is what grandpa went through, right? So we tend to, you know, you tell any veteran like, yeah, I made a film, Last Full Measure, about the Vietnam War. And they go, great, I lived it, I don't need to see it or whatever. I was in Afghanistan, I don't need to see any, I don't need to hear a bullet or uh, I don't need to see a, a gunshot or someone killed. So they tend to either, either there's a handful of veterans that gravitate to films like this and like that's their therapeutic stuff to watch it. And then there's ones that just refuse to see it. I will say this, it is so important that if you have a loved one who has served or a first responder or has suffered trauma of any sort to sit with them and watch this movie with them from beginning to end and take it very serious for them because they will come out of it on the other end in a much better place. It, I have not watched it with anybody who said that was really awful to sit through. That was tough on me and I wish I never saw it. Everybody says, wow, I work through something I didn't think I necessarily was going to work through. Like something happened, something there's a release that happens in that film. And, um, if you know someone who's struggling with depression or, um, who has suicidal thoughts or has gone through some traumatic experiences, especially first responders or veterans, sit with them, watch it, hold, hold, hold a place for them. Just hold a place for them. And if you have to pause it and let them have a moment, like give them that moment, but sit through the whole thing with them and uh, and watch them come out on the other end in a better place. That that to me is the greatest gift that, that we could give with that film. Um, you know, it's not like any other project I've ever done where like download it, buy it for four ninety nine, and you know, let's <laughs> tell your friends, tell your friends, so we can make a buck. Like none of us is none of us did it for the money, and none of us are promoting it for the money. And and most likely the way it, it, it was cost and the spent and and the contracts that were done, none of us will ever see any money from it. So <laughs> so it, it you know we say this with with the purity of of helping others it's really one of those films you should you should see it's therapeutic and um i'm glad i'm glad it was for you and and your wife absolutely yeah. well i think that's the perfect place to finish this up awesome so, thank you so much for all of this i mean you know like i say this a lot and i and i mean it there's there's an element of telling a story that's opening those wounds up yeah. you know but then there's so much power to the thousands of people that are going to hear this but it takes courage you know, it takes courage to own your own story and it takes even more courage than to tell other people. And then that parallel with the film, you know, and the story that told, you know, there's just so much value to this conversation. So thank you for being brave and, and yeah. telling it. I appreciate you. Thank you. You're worth it, man. I, I love what you're doing and uh, keep doing it. And the people you're interviewing and speaking to and, and, uh, and helping you know your audience kind of hear these stories in, in a time like they're, we're going through right now and the things we're discussing, um, it's just so important to have these conversations. You know, you you and I stand on a bit of a different political spectrum now, but like I said, we're probably aligned in more ways than we possibly can imagine. You know, and and uh, you know, I think we both just want what's best for humanity, whatever that may be. 
you know so right on 